It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Pyramids and rock and roll. You are listening to Brothers of the Serpent Podcast. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, angels and demons and monsters and serpents to Brothers of the Serpent Podcast, coming to you not live from the 10 by 10 by 10 tangent cube of science, nestled amongst the dusty bones of an ancient seabed high atop the Edwards Plateau. We have a kind of a different show for you uh, today, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, angels and demons. Rock and roll show. <laughs> That's right. We had on uh, Scotty Baldwin, who has uh, basically been mix, uh, doing the front of house uh, mixes for tons of enormous acts, Prince and Madonna and Lady Gaga and all kinds of stuff. He goes to China every week or every other week or something like that. And he's traveled all over the world and met a lot of interesting people. So we had a great talk with him. He's also... A fan of the show. He's interested in ancient mysteries, pyramids, and he loves Randall Carlson. So we talk Randall Carlson, we talk ancient mysteries, we talk pyramids, and we talk rock and roll and crazy stuff. Yeah, and, and general philosophizing. That's right. We do some philosophizing about science and what it means to be a curious person. Uh, and uh, it, it's really it was really cool to me how how the, the conversation flowed from you know, rock and roll and music and mixing to ancient stuff and pyramids and philosophy and back just yeah. up and down through the whole thing. It was really cool. It was, it was a very, very, very good conversation. So yeah. hope you guys will enjoy that. And the watcher was there with us to talk with Scotty. So he was helping us out. And as you'll hear in the interview, but sadly he had to go before we recorded this intro. So he is not here now. So I can't introduce the watcher, but he was there during the interview. So we'll just go ahead and start with Space Weather News from spaceweather.com, which I should have had pulled up and I don't. Here it is. Volcanic gases reach the stratosphere again. For the second time this year, a volcano has injected sulfurous gases into the stratosphere. NASA satellites find that emissions from the Ulawun volcano in New Guinea reached the stratosphere on August 3rd, following a similar eruption from the Rekoke volcano in the Kirul Islands on June 22nd. This latest ejection of SO2 could produce volcanic sunsets in the tropics and the southern hemisphere for months to come. Also, late season noctilucent clouds. The northern summer season for noctilucent clouds or NLCs is coming to an end, but it is not over yet. Arctic sky watchers are still seeing occasional electric blue ripples in the twilight sky. Claire Sires sends this picture from northern Sweden, which is a beautiful picture of some noctilucent clouds there. Although NLCs are a, pop, a polar phenomenon, polar sky watchers seldom see them. The summer midnight sun interferes with visibility. As summer comes to an end, northern skies are darkening, allowing for midnight sightings in places like Sweden. If you live in a high northern location, be alert for NLCs as August comes to an end. And submit your images here to spaceweather.com. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, let's see. What, is, what do we got here? Current conditions. Solar wind speed, 356.6 kilometers per second. Density is 2.8 protons per cubic centimeter. 
Yeah, keeping those protons down. Yeah, yeah. I get the wind speed down and the protons down. Interesting. Hmm. Wasn't there an explosion on the sun you told us about last time? Yeah. Yeah. A non-flare explosion. Yeah. Something like a magnetic field collapses and then yeah. throws a bunch of stuff out. It was totally not aimed at us that time, though. Okay. Got to know what the sun's doing, folks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I have some emails. Let's see. Let me pull those up here. Got some listener emails. Uh, I should have had this ready, and I don't. Sorry about that. We've been uh, working on fixing problems that I created by <laughs> deleting things. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> For a long time. <laughs> and let's see. Where is it? I gave Russ like an hour to get ready. And I didn't. And he didn't do it I at all. I sat back here and, and backseat drove while he was trying to fix stuff, which I was totally not helpful. Okay. So 109 from the Grand Watcher. He says, I watched you on YouTube for the first time. It wasn't immediate that I knew which of you was whom. <laughs> what an enhancement. Of course, I can't play solitaire the whole time, but it was just great to see what you were discussing the entire show. <laughs> Thanks, Grand That's Watcher. Cool. Yeah. Did you figure out which one of us was who? <laughs> <laughs> you know me, man. I've hung out with you and talked about Linda Moulton Howe and stuff. If you're looking at the computer screen and you have a mirrored display of my camera, I'm on the right if I'm facing you. <laughs> That's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh. So we do have a bunch of other emails, but uh, most of them have personal stuff in them. I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been communicating with us and however you do it. Uh, comments on the website uh, through email. I obviously can't always read the emails because the, when they have personal things in there that are sort of not possible to pull out of the email, then I don't usually want to read it on the show because there's personal information about the person or whatever. So, but I just want to say thanks to everybody who's sending us stuff and we really appreciate it. I do read all the emails and all the, all the comments. Uh, so the other thing I have before we get to the interview with Scotty is a story. This is a kind of a long story, but it's from smithsonianmagazine.com. So smithsonianmag.com. It's called What Happens when an archaeologist challenges mainstream scientific thinking. The story of Jacques Sinkmars, I hope I'm saying the last name right there, uh, and the Bluefish Caves shows how toxic atmospheres can po uh, poison scientific progress. Okay. What I remember most about Jacques Sinkmars the first time we met was his manner. One part defiance, one part wariness. It was 1994, and I had just flown into the small village of Old Crow in northern Yukon. Sink Mars was waiting in the tiny airport. Tall, grizzled, and unshaven, the French-Canadian archaeologist looked every bit the old Yukon hand. Still in his early, early 50s, he worked as a curator at what is now called the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. But Sink Mars lived for summer fieldwork, combing Yukon riverbanks and rock shelters for traces of Ice Age hunters. In three hollows known as the Bluefish Caves, he and his team had discovered something remarkable, the bones of extinct horses and woolly mammoths bearing what seemed to be marks from human butchering and toolmaking. Radiocarbon tests res uh, result, uh, results dated the oldest finds to around 24,000 years before the present. That was in 94. Yeah. 
Bluefish caves directly challenged mainstream scientific, scientific thinking. Evidence had long suggested that humans first reached the Americas around 13,000 years ago when Asian hunters crossed a now submerged landmass known as the Beringia, which joined Siberia to Alaska and Yukon during the last ice age. From there, the migrants seem to have hurried southward along the edges of melting ice sheets to warmer lands in what is now the United States, where they and their descendants thrived. Researchers called these southern hunters the Clovis people after a distinct type of spear point that they carried. And the story of their arrival in the New World became known as the Clovis First Model. So, Sink Mars, however, didn't buy that uh, story, not a bit. His work at the Bluefish Cave suggested that Asian hunters roamed the northern Yukon at least 11,000 years before the arrival of the Clovis people. And other research projects lent some support to the idea. At a small scattering of sites from Meadowcroft in Pennsylvania to Monte Verde in Chile, Archaeologists had unearthed, hearth, uh, unearthed hearths, <laughs> stone tools, and butchered animal remains that pointed to an er earlier migration to the Americas. But rather than launching a major new search for more early evidence, the finds stirred fierce opposition and a bitter debate, one of the most acrimonious and unfruitful in all of science, noted the journal Nature. Sink Mars, however, was not intimidated. He fearlessly waded into the fight. Between 1979 and 2001, he published a series of studies on bluefish caves. It was a brutal experience, something that Sink Mars once likened to the Spanish Inquisition. At conferences, audiences paid little heed to his presentations, giving short shrift to the evidence. Other researchers listened politely, then questioned his competence. The result was always the same. When Jack, uh, when Jack proposed, whoops, it skipped on me. When Jack proposed that bluefish caves was twenty four thousand years old, it was not accepted. Says, says William Josie, director of natural resources at the Vuntut Gwich'in First Nation in Old Crow. In his office at the Canadian Museum of History, Sink Mars fumed at the wall of closed mines. Funding for his bluefish work grew scarce. His field work eventually sputtered and died. Today, decades later, the Clovis first model has collapsed. Based on dozens of new studies, we now know that pre-Clovis people slaughtered mastodons in Washington State, dined on desert parsley in Oregon, made all-purpose stone tools that were the Ice Age version of X-Acto blades in Texas, and slept in sprawling, hide-covered homes in Chile, all between 13,800 years and 15,500 years ago, and possibly earlier. And in January, a University de Montreal PhD candidate, Lorianne Bergen, or Bergen, and her colleagues published a new study on bluefish cave bones in the journal PLOS1, confirming that humans had butchered horses and other animals there 24,000 years ago. The new findings, says Quentin Mackey, an archaeologist at the University of Victoria in British Columbia who was not a member of the team, are prompting the first serious discussion of bluefish caves nearly 40 years after the excavation. This report will, will tilt the scales for some archaeologists towards accepting the site, and for some more, it will inspire a desire to really evaluate the caves more seriously and either generate new data or try to replicate this study. But the study also raises serious questions about the effect of bitter, decades-long debate over the peopling of the New World. Did archaeologists in the mainstream marginalize dissenting voices on this key issue? And if so, what was the impact on North American archaeology? Did the intense criticism of pre-Clovis sites produce a chilling effect, stifling new ideas, and hobbling the search for early sites? Tom Dillahay, an ar archaeologist at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee and the principal investigator at the Chilean site of Monte Verde, thinks the answer is clear. The scientific atmosphere, recalls Dillahay, was clearly toxic and clearly impeded science. 
So yeah. the article's much longer, and it goes into the story of the, the author does field work, goes out, flies out in a helicopter to the bluefish cave, sees a whole bunch of stuff. It's really cool. But the point is, is that what I wanted to get across there was the uh, what we talk about on this show quite often, which is the chilling effect uh, that, that there's this, that, you know, there's skirt tarts. Basically, <laughs> yeah. it's a bunch of skirt tards in the audience not accepting his data and just like when it comes out and they can't question the data, they question his competence. You know, that's yep. skirt tartary at its finest. So, yeah, I suggest people, if you're interested in that, go read the article. It's great. It's uh, really well done. Uh, I only read about maybe it's pretty cool. It's on the, of it. on the Smithsonian. Yeah. Website. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yep. Graham. Hancock talks a lot about that. You about know, the bluefish caves, yeah. No, the the well, I was talking more about the uh, just the attitude of archaeologists towards oh yeah anybody with a alternative idea or theory or even evidence. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He does. He and really in, in America before he really gets into that with mm-hmm. the North American archaeology specifically because he's looking into that and he's showing how. How bitter and terrible the yeah. the situation was here with Clovis first and all that stuff. So yeah, yep. Yeah. How many years have they been like rigidly holding on to this idea <laughs> and not moving forward at all on any? Uh, yeah, for, forty or fifty, I guess. Tossing all of the data. Yeah, yeah. That might suggest otherwise. Yeah. Where We're is out. it? Yeah, I all know. in file drawers, right? Tucked away. Yeah, forgotten. Laco, they, they, I mean, they flooded so many sites that had places, you know. Ugh. They're under reservoirs now. So, why, you know, why do they want to hold on to that idea? I don't so know. Hard. I don't know. It's a good question. Now we should. Uh, we'll talk to Scotty that. about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we will have done that. <laughs> Well, we got we got an Area 51 update. Yeah, Area 51, Storm Area 51 is no longer Storm Area 51. It is. It has been changed by the creator to yeah. Alien Stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we mentioned this on the last podcast. Yeah, we got from, more information from now. September 20th to September 22nd in Rachel, Nevada. AlienStockFestival.com. Uh. Basically, they're going to turn it into a big rock and roll concert. Yeah. Rock and roll and aliens. Yeah. Festival, so, giant music yeah. festival and party. So, yeah. so our, um, well, my band, $50 Dynasty, we have a, a good friend and a guy who managed the band for quite some time. Uh, he's kind of the networker slash yeah. Yeah. network man. Yeah. And uh, he's he's very busy these days. Uh, but he still always has us, you know, on, on his mind Yeah, and just like randomly does stuff. So <laughs> he saw this thing and he submitted our band <laughs> to, to, play to play at Alien Stock. <laughs> and then he just, he sent us all a message like, bam, dude, I just submitted it. They're going to get back to me in 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually may be going to storm area 51 because that's what this is really all about. <laughs> yeah, so we basically we're we're starting to learn how to Naruto jam. <laughs> you got to put your guitar behind your back with your arms straight out and rock out. 
Naru- Naruto jamming. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, you can play your solos much faster that way, apparently. <laughs> yeah, so if we do end up getting, if they do want us to play there, we're all going to show up with Naruto headbands to play, obviously, on stage. <laughs> you have to. Yes. We're all going to have Naruto headbands with the metal thing on the front. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so we haven't we haven't heard back yet. Yeah. Uh, at least we haven't heard back from Todd. So I don't know if um, if they got back with him yet. But um, we'll find out and I'll let you guys know if we're going to be at Alien Stock. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap! <laughs> People have been asking us. So are you going to this summer fifty one? We're like, no, I don't think so. And here we are. <laughs> maybe now, maybe. <laughs> So we'll let you know. That's right. That's our latest Storm Area 51 update. We're going. So (laughs) we're going to be there. All the jokes we made about how dumb this is, and now we're going to be there. It's freaking, hopefully we're going to be there. All right. Well, I think that's it. This was a short segment, but we have a long talk. Great, uh, fantastic interview with Scotty Baldwin. So let's just... Let's get right to that. Yep. Yep. All right. We'll come right back and you guys hope you enjoy the interview. It was a blast for us. He is a front of house engineer, which means he uh, he's the guy responsible at a live show for the sound that the crowd is hearing. He's the dude at the giant mixing board somewhere out there in the in the theater. And he has worked with uh, The Revolution, with Prince, Black Eyed Peas, The Fray, Madonna, Lady Gaga, Stevie Wonder, Scissor Sisters, Earth, Wind & Fire, R. Kelly, Maxwell, D'Angelo, Duran Duran, and others. There's a whole list here. I can't go through the whole thing. <laughs> Scotty, thanks for being on the show, man. We've been every, talking about every this for a while. Time I, every time I add someone, someone has to drop off the bottom. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's the thing. You just look for the, like, okay, who's the least popular person? I'm just going to drop them off the bottom of the list. I think R. Kelly is next. I think <laughs> yeah. he's the one I'm going to drop now. Duran <laughs> uh, Duran is the one at the very bottom of the list that you sent me. So maybe that guy. <laughs> oh, those guys were good, though. Those yeah, guys yeah, were fun. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to be here, you guys. It's not the normal subject matter for the listener. They're going to be going, wait a minute. I tuned in to get something about some pyramids. Old, pyramids. Yeah, pyramids. <laughs> well, you know, every once in a while, we're, well, we are going to talk about a little bit of ancient stuff because you've, you've visited some sites. And yeah. we'll talk to you about... Um, uh, about so some of the places you've been to that probably that may you know like like for instance I I you sent me a picture of you with the uh, the terracotta soldiers, so we're definitely going to talk about that. But yeah, we also I, I talk also a little rock and roll. I right? want to know uh, what is the largest object that's ever moved across the room while you were mixing a live show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have a I have a great video from somewhere in Las Vegas in a in a, a disco club, and I think I was there with 
might have been Black Eyed Peas or someone. And there's a couple of bottle, bottles of Fiji water, and they're just blah, 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 moving across <laughs> these bass traps. And it was, I kind of, I was going to say, what's the pattern here? Is there a pattern? Yeah, yeah. How yes. are these things going to meet? You know, you guys could have probably broken that down. I'm not sure. <laughs> it was pretty random to me, though. You know, back in back in ancient times when they were uh, singing the stones into place, there had to be the you know the front of house guy. Yeah, who was like right. tweaking the knobs. No, turn the block to the left. <laughs> With a Perrier in one hand as well, and maybe sunglasses on. Yeah, yeah. probably. <laughs> it's front of house guys. You know, we're pretty important. Just ask us. <laughs> so. What let's let's just start with some stories you got. You've you've been all over the world. You've done some crazy stuff. Been at some crazy shows. Enormous crowds. So like, tell us some tell us some great stories that you've you've got on on your mind. Well, it's interesting. I never set out to be. Um, I don't want to say in the music industry, but I never set out to be an engineer. And I sort of feel like it just chose me, and then I just continue to do it. And then I just now I'll be you know I'm in I'm in the second half of my second half of the century yeah. you know, in my life. And, <laughs> and it just c continues to be there for me. So I never set out to do it. It wasn't like a dream, but I'm, when you get, when you're hyper competent at something, it sort of chooses you and continues to, to take you in. And, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, it started rather innocuously. I wanted to be a guitar player. Um, I found out I quickly, I found out quickly, I didn't have really the aptitude for that. And, but I could take guitars apart and I understood resonance and frequency and I understood uh, vibration and I understood why that worked. And so I got hired by a local band in Minneapolis here to, uh, to tour with them. And I did about a year of that. And then I got noticed by Prince's drummer and he said, you know, anything about drums? And I said a little bit, and he took me on. And within a couple of weeks of that, it might've been within a week of that, I'm out at Paisley park in rehearsals with Prince uh, behind, behind Michael, the drummer and in the room with Prince every day, six days a week. Nice. So that that was that's a sort of a meteoric rise into yeah. the industry. I didn't have to didn't have to slough gear for that long before yeah. I was wow. in the presence of greatness, you know. And then and then I subsequently I was the drum technician, the the acoustic drum technician for Prince, and that lasted about four or five about five years. Toured with him from ninety to ninety four, um, learning all the while while he would fire sound guys. He, I was learning why he fired them. And I have just, I, when I was younger, I had an eidetic memory. So I could kind of ace through ace school and, and um, I, because I was visually recording it and I would go uh. back and sort of read it. But one teacher noticed that I had to look at something blank and, and, and then I would sort of read it back. And she said, no, 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 look at me and answer that. And I couldn't. So, mm. so I, that's I interesting. To, I had a hyper hyper focused uh, uh on my on my memory so i started to have to i prince would say things in the room and i would just throw them in my memory bank and just sort of throw them in that you know yeah that mental rolodex and so i've got tons of stories and they're all true and unembellished and from every artist and i also have a, a great memory for why things have curved the way they have in my career and i've taken all those lessons and that's what we do in life we try to amass all these things that we through which we things that we experience and try and make them head a certain direction that's why hopefully we get better at things yeah so so you had a rolodex of what not to do is that what you're saying like <laughs> about about half of them or, or over 50 percent were what not to do yeah little minds to to avoid and then the rest were were hey do this this is good do more of this and i can recall every one of them i write them down now it's different yeah but uh they're still there and I still learn. I learn from every show that I do. I learn something I try and pick up. And I think that's, 
that's good. And people of like mind sort of gravitate toward one another. So if you're curious, uh, if you're a curious person and you, you know, you're led by curiosity, you're going to naturally gravitate toward different things. I'm sure, you know, uh, it's say, uh, 3M, for example, is headquartered in St. Paul, Minnesota, not far from me, five, six miles from me. I'm sure there's a, a guy there at 3M that's getting off work about now. He's going to go home. He's going to strap on a bass and play. He's yeah. a corporate guy in his life, but at home he's going to play bass or he has a band or he wants to, right? There's, yeah. We all have those different interests, varied interests. Oh yeah. And some people are able to use them specifically as hobbies <clears throat> or, well, or interests. Interests are free. Hobbies cost money. George Carlin said that. So, uh, <laughs> so either they have it as an interest or a hobby, and then you continue to do it. Some people can make a living at their hobbies. And now we're seeing in, in the age in which we live now that you can make your interests or hobbies your living. Yes. Like Rogan doesn't need to tour. He doesn't need to, he can just build that studio and, and yep. work it out. And, you know, we can turn things in which we are interested into a living. So I've always tried to ride that line between enjoyment and work. And I don't really feel like I've worked a day in this industry. It's always been, I think I've done take making smart choices and made the right choices to kind of get me through and navigate because there's a lot to navigate in the, in the um, music business. Absolutely. And it's changing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So tell us some stories. You got, you got a memory. Let's hear some. <laughs> um, they go all the way back from, boy, um, some that jump out were initially were the way that Prince would um, excuse a monitor engineer from their duties. You know, we had, there were so many, the monitor engineer is the person that mixed for the band. I mix, I'm a front of house engineer. I mix for the crowd, uh, the audience that comes in. Uh, the only tougher seat in the entire industry than front of house for Prince was monitors for Prince. <laughs> yeah. And in my tenure, I think I mixed him uh, from, uh, I guess, 2000 to 2016, right before his death. Uh, and there were 33 monitor engineers in my tenure at front of house. So oh, they wow. came, they came and left just like that. It's a very prestigious and, number. Yeah. Yeah. And as, Prince, as one guy, one guy who was, who was uh, a really great engineer, I, I won't say his name, but he's an amazing engineer. He was doing monitors for a while. And when he came, I came in one day to the arena, we had multiple nights in an arena and I walked in and I looked at my system engineer. I looked at my tech and I just said, Hey, where's, where's this guy? And he just shook his head. Uh, he yeah. just said no, you know, yeah. like, uh, no. <laughs> like Roy Scheider just said no. When Richard Dreyfus swam to the surface in Jaws and looked around and said, Quint, and he just said, no, no, <laughs> I just looked at him and he just said no. And I went off. Oh. So I didn't, I didn't feel like talking to Prince that day. So I hid from him. I made it up to the stage. He called me up on the stage. I went up there and, and we were in a little bit of a fight and I wouldn't talk and he wouldn't talk. And he said, are we mad today? And I said, Nope, I don't get mad, but I had my arms folded. So he said, oh, I cannot be mad too. And he set his cane down, took off his sunglasses and he folded his arms and we just stood next to each other <laughs> until I broke. And I said, well, you know, he's a great, he was a great monitor guy. And he said, oh, they're all great, Scotty. They all say they're great. You know, but in 35 years, I've never been able to find a monitor engineer who could make it sound sexy and make ballads sound beautiful and make the right decisions and think like a musician. He said, can't you find me one engineer out like that? out there. And I said, you've had a bunch like that, but you fired them all. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, I've never fired anyone in my career. They've all fired themselves. Ah. <laughs> and I said, 
Of course, of course they had. <laughs> so anytime I would say from then on, anytime I would say something, well, you fight uh, that guy fired himself. You know, I have to quickly change in mid sentence. <laughs> yeah, because that's the way artists think. Sometimes they can do no wrong. They're they're less a part of the um, as responsible as Prince was at making people feel like they were part of the um, you know ownership. Ownership's a big deal to me. It's something I prize. Um, I have a certain ownership, and when I do a mix. And good leaders, as they say, good leaders, what is it, a Taoist thing? I don't know. Good leaders lead from behind. At the end of the day, their workers will say, we did it ourselves. Yeah. Hmm. Now, if you're going to build a mix and have an arena show and make $1.2 million, that's one thing. If you're going to build a pyramid that's 500, however many feet tall, yeah, with thousands of slaves, you have to be a hell of a leader. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. To motivate people because there is no ownership in that for them. Right. So that that's always uh, that's always been on my mind about how was this stuff built how, back in the ancient times. It's something I'm sure we can touch on, oh, yeah. on which we can touch later. But motivation is a big deal to me. Something I don't hear people talking about. Well, this happened and then that and then they built this. Right. And I always think, how did you motivate people to do that? It's easy to do it through money now. Yeah. Right. We live in a different time. But um, I've been part of a huge motivations, you know, where I think the biggest crowd I ever, I've ever mixed was 350,000 people on a German air base. Wow. Um, which is a whole different, even a whole different sound to the crowd. Yeah. Right? You go from a room full of people or a golf clap kind of thing all the way to <laughs> arenas and we know how arenas sound. And then, but there's a whole different sound to uh, even bigger than a stadium. It was a different sound. Plus it was Europeans who are so great anyway at, and as fans and it just had a different energy you could almost feel it it was almost you could feel it going moving through me so that you know three three thousand i mean three hundred thousand down to down to prince called the band in once at 2 30 a.m out in uh, chanhouse at paisley park and i drove out there in the middle of the night still had i'm sure the marks on my arms where i was sleeping you know, the pillow <laughs> marks on here and i went out there and he, he played an hour show for one woman sitting in the middle of a room holding roses wow and I thought, what? oh man. So we, you get you get the gamut. You know, it goes from a, an audience of one to an audience of a third of a million people. Holy crap! An audience of one. An audience of one. Prince played for me last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You and who? No, just no, just me. Just me. What well, was that about? Do you know? It was probably part of the courtship. You know, um, it when you were. Uh, when you were kings, you guys have forgotten more about most of what we're going to talk about than I'll ever know, <laughs> right? So, when you back in those days, when kings, when they would play chess, they would. I was stupefied to learn that they would use actually pe people, people standing on a ch yeah. on a chessboard, a guy on a horse, and you'd say knight three to rook, and he would just like click, 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 and they would yeah. walk over. That's crazy. Yeah. So the scale is different, right? Yes. You talk about scale and variance. Well, this is scale and variant. So P Prince specifically, and I have a lot of Prince stories because he was a architecturally and fundamentally, he was a huge part of what I was uh, and growing up and learning. So he would, he was playing chess on a different chessboard. It involved actually ah. people and movement. So the scale there was a lot larger. So you could excite people into action at two 30 in the morning in Minneapolis and everyone would rush out there to play for an audience of one <laughs> where normally you just put, strap a guitar on Kyle and strap a guitar on to his now wife and he would woo her with a song. Yeah. You know, an acoustic, 
Like, and that's what got me about Kyle. Played me a song, right? <laughs> Kyle couldn't get fifty dollar dynasty together to play. Yeah. Get me out there yeah. to run the lights and the sound yeah. and everything. Yeah. Two thirty in the so morning. It's all, it's all about scale. And that's and some people know that. Like our friend Randall, he understands scale and variance. That's you guys right. understand it. So things move in a different scale. And the music industry typically, because they're living larger than life, everything has to be scaled up. Right. It doesn't make the people taller, the stage is bigger. It just makes everything have to be scaled up and you have to sing more to a spotlight than you do to the front row. Right. Yeah. And good, good musicians know how to change where they, to, to where they play by the audience. You know, it's like my wife always says, she's an opera singer and, and theater director and actor. And she says, know your audience, know yeah. your audience all the time. It's one of the most important things. And it, it pertains to everything in life. Know your audience. Like I know coming on here, as I, I mentioned you guys earlier, I regularly weekly, I, I mix for between 50 to 80,000 people for in, in China, in different cities in China. I was more nervous firing up the microphone to be on this podcast than I am <laughs> at a show because I'm, I'm in your house now. I'm in the tangent cube of science. That's I am, right. <laughs> I, I, do, will I know enough? Am I good enough to bring things up? Do they, because these guys are, again, have forgotten more than I know about most of these <laughs> subjects. So it's all about knowing your audience. And I know I have to... I want to sheepdog things to you guys and questions for you because it keeps your listeners interested because your audience is a specific audience. You guys know who your audience is? I mean, have you done the demographics on your audience or you just kind of feel what they are and who they are? Uh, that's a good question. We haven't done demographics studies. No demographics, but... We uh, know they're all serpents and <laughs> they love pyramids. That's all that matters. Um, you, could, you would think that maybe contact at the cabin. I actually thought about this when I looked at photos from it. I, w I wanted to see specifically, I thought, how many males, how many females, yeah. what's the racial breakup? What's the demographic of age? Yeah. What's, and I paid attention to that. That was, uh, that was in, in my cognition when I was looking at photos. So you say, okay, there are this many women, there are yeah. this many men, there are this demographic and this age. And you break it down like that because you have to know your audience as well. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can survive wholly on feel, on the Obi-Wan Kenobi yeah. You know, aspect where just like, I'm just going to feel my way through and hope that everything works out. But um, savvy people know who their, you know, audience is and they know how to, how to, pre you know, be, how to cur curve presentation for that audience. Yeah. So, well, I think that uh, that's, a, that's really interesting. So my philosophy on this has always been that, that we do what we so so we we started this podcast as a continuation of discussions that we already were having that we had already been having for like over 10 years right yes and so and so because a podcast so we're both musicians we've played in front of audiences and you're right when you're playing in front of an audience and you so like when you're going there you're like okay what's the venue am i downtown in a place that does mostly hard rock or am i in a country bar that usually plays country like you know there's so there's different right so you pick different songs you may have a different feel you may have set up different lights right if you're playing in a country bar, uh, like a small town country bar, you're not going to want to like blast the, the hell out of them like you would if you were playing in a like a rock bar downtown or something. You know what I mean? Like there's just different. Yes. That, that's totally true that you want to read your audience and understand the venue and understand the place and understand who's going to be there. But for the podcast, our idea was more like we're going to do what we're already doing and not change that. And then the people who will show up are the people who want to hear what we've already been doing. You see what I'm saying? So, yes. so in my mind, the, the audience has always been people who like if so if we're if we go to like a house party and Kyle and I are standing there talking about pyramids, 
our audience are the people that end up around us also talking about pyramids. <laughs> so adroitly put. That really is effective the way you say that. And I have to say, I've gone back and listened to super early episodes. And all that's changed is you guys have gotten more savvy with time, with that's right. how to how your your interstitials, your ins and outs, and how you wrap up something because the the sand, you know, it's running out. And yeah. so you say, okay, we're going <laughs> to take a break. So you're looking for those holes and you, you just got more savvy. You got fighter savvy about that. Right. But otherwise you're, you're con uh, the content has remained really the same. And that's, what's fascinating. So I'm not in a position to say I'm proud of you guys, but I like that you've kept things the same. And I know that there's occasionally when you read the viewer, uh, the, the listener, um, uh, reviews, some people say they talk about the laughing. I think it's one of the most endearing qualities of the show is that you you are siblings and you enjoy each other's company so much that you'll sit in a hot cube <laughs> that's right <laughs> and you guys laugh and can still make each other laugh most siblings wouldn't be able to stand that much time with each other i think it's um i think the notion is very it's attractive that you guys actually it attracts people to you because people like knowing that they these guys get along. They really are. No, no, no. They really are brothers. Yeah. Like they really are. They farm and they do all sorts of stuff. And <laughs> you, right. you were working on wine today. Right. Yeah. And you, yeah. and, and you guys are always tan, super tan. And you, <laughs> right, you're out and you're working and then you still want to spend time with each other. Yep. And that's just, important. Because, just my face and my arms. <laughs> yeah. We have serious farmer tans. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's your next post. Yeah. Instagram. There we go. We're going to just, about a four inch by four inch part that's of your right. arm that shows that. Look at that. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's, uh, and that says something about you as well. That says that <clears> you <throat> just don't feel confident enough to go shirtless. No, it says that. <laughs> that's right. It, it says that you, it says that you're dedicated to what you have something else going on. You guys don't do this for a living. You do this because you love talking to one another. You're interested and engaged in um, history or, uh, in the, in the case of your recent guest, prehistory, you you wanted to know about yeah. things that are bigger than you and things that are meaningful. And, um, that's why the, the whole notion, I think that's why people, um, are so attracted to Randall Carlson. Yeah, He's got so this well. ineffable thing. You can't really describe it in words, but you know what I'm saying? He's got this charm about him and it's not just cause he's from Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to put it all on that. But, um, <laughs> So a lot of times when he talks about places around here, you're like, yeah, soda. <laughs> yeah. I, I know exactly what of what he speaks because I've been to all these places. Yeah. It's, there's something about him. You can tell how engaged, interested and how he's extremely focused, hyper aware, hyper qualified. Yeah. Um, but and he's done his homework at, for a long time. That's right. A long time. He knows knows his stuff. He's kind of he's kind of got the quality. Like so after meeting him, it was clear to me that. And he and what's what's amazing is this 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 comes across even in his audio interviews or the video ones or whatever. But after meeting him, it was clear that the what the quality he has is something of like uh, I think of it as the only way I can really describe it is sitting at the feet of a master. It's a kind of thing like the Pythagorean school or something where you would go to you would go to ancient Greece to sit at the foot at the feet of Aristotle. It's like that. He has this like he has this oratory ability, okay, and this teacher quality that is just, and there's something charismatic in there as well, where you just want to sit down and listen to the guy, right? 
he's fascinating to listen to in the way he puts his sentences together and then the way he will engage and interact with people who are interacting with him as he's teaching. But it's really, I think of it as, as sitting at the feet of a great teacher, right? And that's kind of a thing that's been somewhat diluted in the modern times because we can do it from afar. But with Randall, when you really go and you, and you, you interact with him, it's, you're like, okay, now I understand why people would travel thousands of miles on foot to go and talk to somebody from ancient Greece who was a philosopher, right? You, you sort of get it, right? It, there's, there's hyper-competence is a, is a real thing. Yeah. And we are less hyper-competent than ever. We have people that are, because after all, we have wiki. That's right. right? So, yeah. so if you want to know everything about maxillofacial surgery, yeah. Okay. You just, it takes you 45 seconds to get there and you already can say, well, you know, maxillofacial surgeons are really actually the most badass surgeons of all. They first, <laughs> they take the jaw off and they said, let's get the jaw off. And then let's take a really a good look at what's going on in there. They, they're not afraid of anything there, but it, so if I want to know about maxillofacial surgery, it takes me a couple of minutes. Yeah. It doesn't, you don't, Randall does all this stuff with no notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and right. he, and the other thing he does it with, there's a charm that he has that I'm glad it's something of which he is unaware, which is, um, and you ask any, ask any woman this, that when they find you, when your wives find you most attractive, probably isn't when you have the Armani suit on or the nice suit. It's when you are hyper-focused on something you are doing and they are watching you at work. Yeah. That's an attraction. That's just, I think, biological watching somebody who's really good at what they do and they're doing it is a very attractive quality. And I don't just mean in a, a, a gender way, I, it's right. Watching somebody who's excellent and has to excel and, and excels at what they do, watching them work is great. And Randall is always sort of engaged in what he's doing. And he, and he also, there's something else I noticed about him is that he uses, he's a great, he has great grammar and yes. he knows how to formulate things and he'll say against which the rock was laid you know, and you think <laughs> you think that's not a big deal you're just going to say oh they laid the rock against it but, but he's um, using I'm, yeah. a, big, I'm yeah. a big fan of george carlin and george carlin said words are meaningful and the order in which we place words is meaningful to the way we think and if, if we place words in the right order they they're formulated and it makes sense to people organically they just it's something about it and and randall he, he, he put, there's a guy who's put it all together. You know, he's, he's, uh, and the cool thing about him also is he's not, I don't, unless I'm incorrect about this, he's not degreed in anything. He's not a geologist, a right. doctor. <clears throat> yeah. He's, he's taken so they, many courses. They always in call him, him yeah. renegade scholar. You know, they'll, yeah. they'll, uh, they'll pin something like that to him. And you can always tell when somebody has never had him on as a podcast guest, because they will say, Randall Carlson is a 40 year Mason and a master builder. They yeah. read it right off wiki. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys probably did the first time you had him on. Uh, but, mostly. Yeah. Um, that, and so what it is, though, is when you get to know him and his style, he's just super badass. Right. And he can do all this from recall. Yeah. And um, hype, again, hyper um, when, when people have when they're hyper qualified at something. Yeah. It's and, and that even that even counts for sound. When, when I work with musicians who are hyper qualified at music and know it super well, they it's it's organic and effortless and flowing and you really don't notice the process. So um, I've had to become that way so that I can even engage on a level of artist, artistry and creativity with these kind of artists. And it takes a real, it takes somebody who's really thinking to even negotiate with artists because artists can be driven by their tendencies and their, the, the, they, 
their muse. Just navigation. It, yeah. It's yeah, their muse. It's yeah. a navigation aspect. So I have to I have to navigate working with artists to know how to best get the result that's best for the crowd. In right. Case. So hmm. you're saying game recognizes game. When you're talking about Randall Carlson. Game recognizes game. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a little slow nod and kind of a half hardware yeah, hand. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> game. <laughs> so let's go back to something you were bringing up earlier, because this was really interesting, the motivational aspect of ancient structures. I agree with you. Like, So you get the standard model, uh, what we call the standard model of archaeology, and they're, they're basically saying that for the vast majority of these quote-unquote unexplained structures we see, the motivation was some sort of uh, religious thing, right? They're basically saying, okay, there was some sort of belief structure that was sort of inculcated into the civilization, and that was the motivation for the construct of this enormous thing. I know, but they didn't have travel back then yeah. the way we know it now. So how are there the same shapes and objects? Oh, yeah. Um, that's a question I've had. Because that's true, right? I mean, they're the same symbols, shapes, objects, and structures yeah. are all over the world without the kind of travel that they had back then. And I'm not, I'm not one who falls for crazy theories either. I, I think that's another one of Randall's things is he doesn't go into the fantastical. Right. He goes with pretty concrete steps and, yeah. and how those things would. So how did all that happen all over the world at different times without travel? That's a big question I have. Yeah. But even looking at just the motivation of the people that built one pyramid in one mm. place. Like what, why, yeah. what was the motivation? Like, I agree with you that you have to have an enormous amount of motivation. So we've talked about this before, like a, like a civilization has to be motivated to make a structure period. Right. So like we, 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 in our civilization now, we build these enormous structures that can cost a lot of money to the public. Like for example, like we build uh, dams, giant dams, or or power, and they're usually power plant related, right? And that's because yeah. the public understands that they're going to get a return from this enormous amount of work and materials and resources that we put into these huge structures, right? So yes, the, so the the idea of like why would this ancient <clears throat> civilization also put an enormous amount of work, whatever whatever that work entailed, into some kind of structure? What is what is the return? Well, that, that it comes down to gain. Yeah. What, what do people have to gain? Right. Because we know what you have to gain. If you, uh, if you need to water cities and you need to, you know, you build, we build structures and it's usually gain is involved. Yes. That's what I mean. There's yeah. some sort of gain. How much gain is involved with In the a pyramid? Tomb. Yeah. And, and the watchers, <laughs> yeah. the watchers pointing out why that level of precision. So, you know, <clears throat> to, to be like a certain degree of precision is necessary for the structure to stand up, right? You want yeah, it to right. stay standing or, you know, if there's, if your goal is a specific design um, for beauty, you still need the engineering aspects to be precise to a certain degree so that the, the structure doesn't fall apart or collapse. But they went to ridiculous levels of effort to, uh, achieve ridiculously high levels of uh, precision for what purpose? It would take so much longer. Like as you as you continue to get more and more precise, the amount of time and effort that it takes is growing by orders of magnitude. Yeah. What is the? It, it, do you guys think that we're miss? Is there a missing? You know, I look to Graham Hancock for a lot of that stuff. I think he's a a very brave individual because he's making proclamatory statements about. Like this isn't as we know it. 
And it takes a lot of guts to say that yeah. you're putting yourself uh, really, really naked and afraid out, out there like that. And, but is there a missing motivation? Could there be a missing motivation in all that? Was there gain? Was there a different set of yeah. credit socially for doing, being part of those things? Is there some kind of currency involved in building that? Not clearly physical currency. Was there something that we're missing that's just not written down anywhere? Yeah, I think I think so. That so I think part of what we explore on this podcast is what was the gain, right? In other words, we we recognize as builders, we recognize that this level of precision is so expensive. And even if you didn't have any money, it's expensive no matter what. Like it is expensive yep. in time, effort, uh, and not, not just that. But needed and tools needed, but not just that, but like uh, generations of skill. Right. In other mm -hmm. words, the more precise you get something, the longer, farther back you have to go in, in terms of time and people figuring right. out how to do this. Right? right. So the more precise the structure is, the longer it took to build up the skill set to get to that precision level. So you have all kinds of costs, whether there was money involved or not. So when you have something that's this that's got this level of precision, and in some cases there's structure types that would be incredibly expensive for us to try to duplicate, like some of the stuff in Peru with all the, the polygonal blocks, right? These enormous, massive polygonal block structures that are down in Peru. And, and they're also in, in, in Europe, the, the Cyclopean uh, masonry. We could do it, but it would cost so much. And we would measure it in dollars or, or in some kind of currency, you know, Bitcoin, whatever. But you could still measure the cost in terms of time, effort, tools, materials used, resources, so on and so forth. And then the number of people you'd have to have and what their levels of skill is and all this stuff. So the cost can be measured in multiple ways. So the question is, is like, there has to be some kind of return for that. And the archaeological, the standard model archaeological story is that the return was all immaterial that it was religiously based, right? And that, that, that's, that's where I have the problem. I agree with you that there is some missing, quote unquote, currency, some other gain that we are unaware of, right? I, told, I think that's a good way to put it, that there's some lost, well, you could say it, it's a lost currency. You don't like a lost civilization? <laughs> yes, yes. Fine. There's a lost currency. <laughs> there's, some, there's some, and it has to do with motivation. I know what it's like to, <clears throat> the, the tour on which I'm, I'm, I, and partaking now in China, you know, I have to fly every, I fly every Wednesday to China. I get there Thursday night or early Friday morning. We, we have a, a, a sound check at the stadium on Friday. I have a dinner and drinks that night, Saturday, get up, go to the stadium, do the show, fly home Sunday morning, get home Sunday. Right. That's there. There's gain in it for me though, financially. Yeah. So I, I go there you and have I motivation. go through this <laughs> and I've done this 40 trips in in uh, I think 40 trips in uh, 16 months oh to gosh. China. That's a lot. So and, wait, 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 hold on, but you, you keep flying to the other side of the world. So is it flat or are you pretty sure you're going around a sphere? Because <laughs> you do this like once a week. So what do you think? <laughs> it, it is it is flat because I go back and I go forth. <laughs> so I don't know what this round thing. Uh, I think it, that's that's such a funny that's such a funny thing because it's so elemental that it's actually to know that it actually exists says something very bad about people yeah. or it says something very good about them that they have that they have humor or that they really do believe <laughs> we're, we're hit with this cavalcade there's so much information in the yeah. world right now it's just we just we can't get enough of it it's visualized information and it's audio and there's just so many ways to fill your ear holes and your eye holes with stuff that um it's just too much and so we end up falling for stuff that 
I don't know why people, that's an, that's another good discussion. Why people would actually take flatter seriously. Why would that's they a, actually believe and yeah, put I, themselves I think, out there to do that? I think it's, it's uh, a grand conspiracy because basically from what I've learned about people that, that, that believe the flat earth idea, everything is a conspiracy. All of the science, quote unquote, scientific discoveries, the moon, the moon landing, going to space, uh, the government's lying to us about everything, you know. So there's a certain level where you can sort of understand um, we've been lied to so much by governments and things like that yep. that people just start – they get fed up and they go just total deep dive into everything's a lie. But we have to remember that governments are made up of people. Yeah. And people are generally all the same. We have families. We've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Which is a pyramid, by the way, and um, <laughs> and and so we have to we put safety and we put you know shelter and we I don't know what his I, I've forgotten all of them after all these years but those are people with yeah. families that live places and to think that they have some sort of long term plan that's super savvy and the Bilderbergs and all these things I what 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 time has changed and you can't keep those ideals within people for very long before they get interested back into what they're interested in yeah. themselves. It's the long heads. Yeah. That's, that's the one of the, heads. that's <laughs> a really, you're laying out one of the points we've discussed many yeah. times about, uh, why is our history seemingly like they're not really looking into these, these questions, uh, in terms of the standard model of, of the history of well, that's the human race. That seems to all be based in, to me in. E I sorry to cut you off. That that seems to be based in ego. Um, a lot I of it, yeah. yeah. I would contend that if you if I worked really really hard to to um, create some thing or some theory about something, and then it was shown to be upstaged by something else, that would be a really bitter and hard pill to swallow. Right. So I I and those people, again, people and people with families and people with interests. But ultimately, the self-interest of ego really just, it, it, it's Gets um, in the way. That's why I love true science. I mean, science is really, what is it, objective? Yeah, science is supposed not, to be objective, yeah. Objective. But, yeah. So you're not, you're not making it fit anything. Like truly, scientists don't care if the, if the globe is warming. They just say, well, here's what we found. But unfortunately, you get people who are interested yeah. for their own interest, self-interest is skewing this and right. they turn it a certain way and you're trying to bend the same numbers and it's just all sort of pervaded. It's pervaded and it's um, right. so really it's, ultimately... Science you know, is supposed to be objective, but it's made up, but science is done by people who are all subjective, right? So it's, right. it's very difficult That's to... Right. Yeah, so that the principles of science are supposed to operate in a way that uh, are supposed to sh give us a pathway to be as as objective as possible without nobody could really be objective because you are yourself and you have this one perspective right so everything everything is relative in terms of you just like so like you think of einstein's relativity and it shows you how the entire universe is actually relative to the point you start with right you have to pick a point and then everything is relative to that point no matter what so the same thing there's the same thing with objectivity and subjectivity right the point is yourself or any given person, that's that's the point, and they are subjective to that point because they aren't somewhere else or someone else, right? So you have all these subjective things trying to do something objectively. So we have this list of rules, or, or, or not really rules, but a, a, a philosophy of science that is meant to sort of help us be as objective as possible, and of course, that depends on whether you really want to be as objective as possible. And 
people don't always when, want to do that. Yeah. When I'm, um, I mixed a show by Prince's former band, The Revolution, <clears throat> last night in Rochester, Minnesota, about an hour and a half from here. Um, five, six, seven thousand people were there. It was, it was a great show. I, I am in one place in the venue. It was in this beautiful big park oh, yeah. by the Mayo Center, um, Mayo Clinic. And I'm in one position there, but I'm trying to service the needs, the listening needs for people in all sorts of different positions. Oh, uh, yeah. So do I, am I in it to win it for myself? Do I just make it sound great where I am? Or do I take the time to work with the system engineer, say, hey, listen, we need speakers over here because clearly they're going to be standing over there. We need to set, you know, we put two more stacks of PA to speakers way to the side and I created another output just so that we would, I would have coverage and try and make it sound as good as possible for as many people as possible. So I'm in a position in the music industry where I have to make it, my goal is to make it um, artistically um, ingestive and a high quality level, the way people know it for as many people as possible. Right. In other words, ground her up the middle through the pitcher's legs for a base hit. Yeah. Like that's what, when, when you, when you talk to major league hitters, um, they, when they go up to bat, they're thinking grounder up the middle. That's what they're trying to hit grounder up the middle because the, the but if, if someone throws a fastball, they're going to hit it late. It's going to go, if they're a left-handed batter, it's going to go to the left side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, an off-speed pitch, they're going to pull to right field. The, the, the pitch has a lot to say with it, but they're thinking up the middle. That's why all the money in baseball are in your middle players catcher pitcher short huh second base left field uh, center field that's where the money is usually up the middle right so you're you're trying to get as much you're servicing as much as you can you have to think up the middle in in, in terms of satisfaction there are very few people that swing as hard as they can every time they they get up and so it's your where our knowledge of how we look at information and take it in or put it out that's really that's really critical Somebody like Randall is putting things out in a very constructive way, one thing at a time with no notes. He's doing it all off the hard work of 40 or 50 years of doing this, right? Going back to that, a flying cloud airport, smoking weed, looking yeah. at the Minnesota River Valley and saying, I wonder if this thing was a river all the way across. <laughs> <laughs> and that it started there. And that's where, and, and it's led him to be like a master degreed or not a master at what he does i always love when people are masters at what they do there's a lot of subjectivity in the music business sadly you don't have to be the best brightest bravest it doesn't have to be an aristocracy it, it it's, yeah i got gotcha. you yeah you can be you can be manufactured in my industry but to to launch people on a rocket who are and you have real people up in the nose cone of that thing you better be really great at what you do if you're the one that pushes the button that's right. So you have to be a master at, you have to at least be part of a team. And that's another aspect of all this is team, how you build teams that have like mind. And it's easy for you guys because you grew up together, you know, each other, you say the same thing, you laugh together. We celebrate you as, as listeners of yours and fans of your show. We celebrate you and your relationship and your curiosity. That's why we're here because we're curious too. So we listen to you because we're curious and it just so happens that you know more than the average bear who listens to you. <laughs> so they, the, you, you guys can say, well, isn't that about that? Oh yeah, it's that. And my, one of my favorite episodes is when you talked with your dad. Yeah, because it was, God, that was a lot it was, of fun. It, it, was, it was critically, it was readily apparent from where you derived your interest, your specialty, your accuracy, 
you know, and, and even your demeanor it's, and that if people haven't listened to that, I don't, I don't know the episode number, but that is, it was uh pyramids or something, right? Wasn't it <laughs> entitled pyramids? Yeah. And pyramids are hard. I think is what we call pyramids it. are hard. Yes. <laughs> and that, that's a fascinating because I learned as much about you guys as listening by listening to your dad. And so it's all about masses trying to, trying to keep everybody happy the way you do when you have a family and you have kids and you're providing and you and your wife are both providers and you're, keeping things happy and you're satisfying things. And it's all about keeping things, but also turning forward and having things and being curious about the world and not letting that end up and not just sit in front of TV the way a lot of people, they, Hey, have you caught up on this show? This right. new show's out on Netflix. And I always say, shit, I don't, I don't have any time at all. You know, just with two kids who are uh, two girls who are nine and 11 and my wife and our, come on, you're on how a, people, you're on a plane for like 30 hours a week. <laughs> you, you know, you know what I've, what I've done is since January 1st of this year, um, I was having, I was clearly, I was having bad bouts with, um, jet lag and, um, cause the earth is flat. Yeah. Yeah. And jet it's lag just, with, it's, it's so far to go in one direction <laughs> and then flat back. And so I, um, uh, I, I, decided to make a couple of changes that have been to my benefit, which, so from January 1st of this year, I don't take, I don't eat anything on a flight. I don't take any of the meals and I'm up in business class and it's nice and it's lay flat. And I'm appreciative of that. That yeah. I've worked this hard in my career that I'm able to be given that. And, um, so I don't eat any food on the flight. I sleep as much as possible. I have you guys in one of my ears most of the time. And, um, while I'm sleeping on the other side and, um, uh, and I don't turn on the TV. Yeah. So no matter how nice, I don't ever touch the screen. I don't even on China Eastern, which is the carrier I take most often. I like, I prefer Chinese uh, carriers to American carriers, but they, um, the TV kind of, you press a button, it kind of swings out to you. And, um, I never open it now. I'm, I'm yeah. really, um, weirdly proud of that, that I'm spending my time That's cool. either reading, um, listening to podcasts, trying to fortify myself and just keep remain frosty. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would do too, man. Like yeah, long, long flights, listen to audiobooks, yeah, and yeah. podcasts. Yep. Door to door for me, it's 30 hours from when the Uber comes at 6 a.m. or 8 a.m. on Wednesday morning to when I get in the hotel and go, ah, <laughs> and then tell, tell Siri to FaceTime my, my wife at home. It's usually about 30 hours wow. and 22 of that is in the air. Man. So it's usually Minneapolis to LA. Uh, which is three and a half, uh, LA to Shanghai, which is 15. And then another three hour flight. And then usually a one to two hour drive in a van by myself with a driver. They, they just, they have a sign that says Baldwin. Yeah. And I get in and we don't really exchange words because there's the barrier. I just say ni hao. And then we walk to the van and then I have a two hour ride and it's, um, it could be exhausting, but I think this latest change of limiting my intake of stimulus, yeah. uh, both physically and, and, uh, mentally has really helped me be able to bounce back. And when I land on Sunday evening, I'm not a wreck for two days because I have to go turn around on Wednesday and leave again. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting that the, the turning off the, the TV helps with that. That's yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it seems, seems so. Yeah. And you guys have, must have a lot of time in the, and feel, and what do you do during the day that would allow you the t amount of time to take in podcasts other than your own or to further your uh, interests? How do you guys manage your time like that? I think people are interested. In well, that. we both have a, 45 minute drive to work and then from work every day. So like that, that gives you time right there, 45 minutes to go and then 45 minutes back. Do you do that together or do you? No, we, no, because, uh, I, I live up the hill and he's usually okay. up earlier than I am. I'm kind of a late riser. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. But we also at the place where we work a lot of times 
it's a bunch of property. So there's a lot of times where you may just be out in the field doing something that is is a lot of a lot of walking around and working on stuff or whatever, and you can just have your headphones in. Right. Uh, if we're having to work with a group of people, then it's harder because you, know, you got to be able to talk to people and communicate. Uh, but then there's a lot of running machines. So once you jump into the cab of the machine, you close the door and you're doing something, then you can turn the podcast on and you, you know, and it's better for your ears anyway because the machine is loud. So you put those earbuds right. in, it kind of blocks out the sound, and you'd be wearing some kind of ear protection anyway, right? So jump in the machine, yes. and then and so we had a job for years where we were. That's all we did. Eight hours a day was running machines, and we were clearing property for people out in the boondocks. And so you download all your podcasts, and you head out to the job site, and you just listen right. for eight hours, right? Yep. So every I day. think at some point somebody's <laughs> gonna uh, monetize, make this all a monetization scheme because I can't believe I can download all that knowledge for free i keep looking <laughs> over my shoulder to see i keep checking to see if somebody's charging me for it yeah <laughs> and it's really pretty amazing and there are ways clearly of monetizing it through youtube and through other means but um yeah. but it's uh it's it's really uh it's really rich you know it's a rich experience to be able to to get all this stuff in a form that we like to you know we can keep busy yeah and still be taking in um accruing knowledge yeah and so and, we, and we've done interest. we've done some experiments on like so what tasks because there are certain things that you can do like i can operate a machine or drive my car all just so like you you know how you can drive your car and listen to the radio or listen to a talk show and right. you can do both of them totally competently right like there might be certain things that happen while you're driving your car that make you drop out of your attention to what's coming in your ears for a couple of seconds and then you can go right back as soon as that thing stops happening right yes uh but it's interesting that there are certain tasks where where, where there's the, this overlap, right? Where you realize, okay, part of this task, like I realized while I've been doing this that I haven't been able to really pay attention to what's happening in the podcast that I'm listening to or the book. Right. All right. So obviously, if you're having to read stuff, if you're writing things down, all, you, all of a sudden you stop hearing what's coming into your ears. You, it, it's coming in and you're hearing it, but you can't pay attention. Right. Right. But operating machines or driving a car, for the most part, does those things don't overlap with each other and so you can do them together at the same time it's interesting yes. like i've tried to i've tried to figure out what what, what are the boundaries here you know like so right. if i'm if, if i'm organizing like so we have shelves and shelves of tools and stuff and if i'm going around and i'm trying to organize everything i can't listen to the podcast because my brain is having to go through categorizations and even though i'm not talking or writing anything down there's something about an organizational thing where i've got to separate stuff that i can't pay attention to what's coming into my ears well, even if you're lost and you're, you have the radio on and you're lost, it, the first thing I do is turn off the radio. <laughs> like, yeah. I, need to, I just need to, even if it's a song, right? I just yeah. go, I just need Whoa, it. Oh, I'm oh, lost. Hold on. <laughs> I need silence. <laughs> what's, what's scarier to me is that um, when I'm frequently, when I'm on the trips to China and there's a great part of your podcast that I go, ooh, I just screenshot it on my phone. And then I will use markup on my iPhone and I'll quickly write um, moon. You know, I'll put Randall Moon. Yeah. And then I draw that on there and then I go back and I, so I see it's at 39.59, you know, that you're uh, talking yeah. about this. So I'll go back. But the, the more, the bad part of that is it's frequently when I'm driving and I'm, I'm driving along and then I will, I'll be trying to skim and find that 39.49. <laughs> and I look up and I say, wait, how have I driven the past five miles? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait, I just drove a bunch of curves on the way to the cabin. Yeah. You know. How did I do that? I've been looking for Randall talking about the moon. He thinks it's hollow or one-sided or something. 
<laughs> we're all interested in what Randall's. We're gonna have to. Are we gonna have to wait for this damn book? Is that what it is? <laughs> I think so. Uh, we're we're trying to push him into the book. Yeah, we're like, come on, Randall, finish the book so we can talk about the moon. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's uh, I it's was, fascinating. I, I was trying to recall some stats that you guys said on one of your um, in front of the revolution. The revolution. I had them all enraptured because they, the five original members of Prince's band were all circled around me two nights ago, and I was saying, <laughs> and the moon is the sun is four hundred what oh, four hundred yeah. times larger than the <laughs> yeah that's right the sun is four hundred times but the moon is four hundred times closer yeah so that's why they're the same and then I wanted to bust off a couple more of those the width of the earth and the diameter of the and I couldn't I just froze <laughs> like a deer I went and this earth <laughs> and it just hung there I need the I need the recall I need the recall of you guys and Randall I need a whole bus stat sheet on on all these sacred not sacred numbers but these seeming coincidental numbers which yeah who knows how all this stuff is lined up right i always wonder if it's a if it's our minds making it work but if but people that seem to really know math go no no man like there's no reason the moon and the sun appear to be the exact same size right because think about it i mean a solar eclipse i mean a it, it would just be yeah, a little thing that we couldn't really see. No other planet in the solar system has this. Like any other right. planet with That's moons, a good point. they they all have. You know, there's a bunch of other planets with moons that they don't they don't have the same relationship. It's just the Earth and its moon and the sun, and that's. And I weird. wonder if it's. I wonder if it's people that want to make it important and make it about us. You know how everything kind of always comes back. I wonder if there's more of us out there. Yeah. And we kind of wax nostalgic and we look up in the sky, and just the fact that we have a moon and the moon. It pulls the tide in and out and that we kind of crawl out of the sea. Is that yeah. the deal? Like because of the tide, the, the thing yeah. is able to crawl up and have time to. Right. To well, keep... it leaves an area where there's water and then not water. So you end up with amphibians. Right. And then you end up with stuff that only lives on land. Like that's the idea that, yeah, you end up with you start out with purely purely mar- marine organisms. But because you have tidal areas, you end up with things that learn to live both in the air and underwater. And is that, it true that comets brought every bit of water that we have on Earth well, to it's, us? It's an idea. Is that a theory? Yeah. You can't say true, but it is an idea. What's interesting, though, is that stars, there's a point in, in most, um, what are they called? Supernovas? No, no. Main. Oh, main, main sequence main stars. Main sequence stars. Most main sequence stars go through a, a fusion process where they, they start out with... You know, let's just start out with like the, the the basic idea. You have all hydrogen. It starts making helium by fusing hydrogen together, and then it starts making something else. And eventually, you get to a point where it's it's making oxygen through the fusion process. And when you get to that point where it's making a lot of oxygen through the fusion process, you end up with jets of water coming out from the north and south pole of the star, because all, a lot of the oxygen that's being generated in the fusion process Bonding bonds with, with the hydrogen and then generates water. And so the star becomes this freaking giant sprinkler. And they've actually found some stars out there that are doing this huge, huge jets of H2O coming out from the poles of the stars, right? So does that create the cometary cloud around any given star? Probably, mm. right? And then you end up with, and then the planets are forming from the, from the gaseous area. And so you end up with, the star is actually what gives most planets their water. They're H2O, yeah. And so. see, I, what's funny is I want to ask you this. When you graduated high school, did you know this stuff? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, it's tough, man. We, don't, we live in an American culture. Anyway, I can, I can only speak on that. 
or maybe Western culture. Yeah. Maybe it's good. Maybe more than ever, people are actually genuinely interested and they are going out of their way to be edu- educating themselves through podcasts, through other means. Yeah. Um, I've always had way more. Um, I've been interested in, even as a kid, I used to watch documentaries on whatever I could find that was right. on the three major networks because there were only four. You know, there was a three majors, a local network, and then PBS. Yeah. <laughs> on, a, on a TV that went chick, 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 chick. Right, exactly. You know? And <laughs> that's all I had as a kid. Yeah. And so I would always watch Nova and 321 Contact, and I would watch these shows that were teaching me something that I didn't know. And I was less into, into fiction because I, and to, it says a lot about you guys that your curiosity is such that it would propel you effectively to educate yourselves. And to understand, and then you turn to each other to, to get updates and clarifications on what you're doing because yeah. you will amass this amount of knowledge, which is really, um, uh, I, the, the, I think the, the next pioneer of, of deep thinker is going to be the ones that, and maybe currently is the ones that are challenging the status quo and what you would call the standard model right now. Yeah. yeah. Because that is a hill that is really tough to climb. Yeah, yeah. it is. I, I actually people just... are in it to protect yeah, so I was gonna I was gonna bring that up. You we were talking a little while ago about you were saying there's ego involved and there's like people trying to protect their theory, right? So I just finished reading this enormous uh, article from the Smithsonian. It's actually just it's on Smithsonian.com. I'll probably I'm probably gonna read it at the beginning of the show when we record the intro. Okay. Um, so hopefully I do that, and people who are now listening now I have heard that article. But anyway, the point is is that the the, it, the story is basically how did the Clovis first model affect the science of archaeology in North America. And it's very interesting mm. because Clovis first has kind of fallen apart at this point, right? The idea that the that the first people that came over to the Americas were the Clovis people and they, uh, it's like 13 12 between 12 and 13,000 BC or so. And that that model held strong for a long I mean like 50 yeah 40 50, 50 years. 40 or 50 years and it was like almost unassailable. And so this article is very long and it's very good on the Smithsonian website that talks about how detrimental it was to the progress of American archaeology. And they also talk about how it happened. What, so they, they go through it in, in this specific article. They're detailing a guy who was up in, uh, in the Yukon and he had found one of the sites where they were digging stuff up that had, it was bones, like bones of, of, of Pleistocene megafauna that had tool marks on the bones. Mm. And they carbon dated the bones and were getting dates like 24,000, 27,000 BC. Okay. And so they detail how he would go to these conventions and he would, or these, you know, it's where a whole bunch of people would come together to give their papers and he would give it and they would just laugh at him and they would ridicule it. the people sitting in the audience. What they would start laughing and snickering and the people would get up and walk out and they would stop paying attention to him. And it was like incredibly detrimental to... You know, and so I'm 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 thinking about that. I'm trying to figure out what what's happening. Is it this? Is it is it some kind of? Is it a? Uh, uh, what what am I trying to say? Is it a culture that is built up in academia, right? Hmm. Of like ridiculing the outsider. That just sort of just is a holdover from what you think of of all the bad high school movies, right? Yeah, you yeah. know that, that's what it reminds me of. I'm like these people yeah. never got out of high school. They 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 graduated high school, went directly into college, and they're still there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, still that, would, in that stands against reason, though, because we still are in competition. Oh, yeah. We always are. It, it's, it's always it's it's perpetual high school. We sort of compare lives and incomes and uh, 
sadly, the, the people, the, the pi true pioneers. I mean, I, I can't imagine how it was for, for Jimi Hendrix when he first said, no, 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 I want to make it sound like this oh, before I the actual amp. I'm going to make it, I'm going to fully drive that amp and distort it. Now put it into another amp so I can control the volume and people either cover their ears or they, they said, what are you doing? And then he got it to do all these cool things. Yeah. I'm not a huge Hendrix fan, but I understand him to be You're not, incredibly what? important. In not the a huge Hendrix fan? Of, Cut the guy. Okay, get him out of here. Get him out I, of here. I would interview over. <laughs> I, I, I would love to be, but, but I'm not, I would love to become a Hendrix fan. Uh, I know Prince was to, to the level where he, where he was such a fan that he he wanted a certain sound like Hendrix, and so we converted uh, Paisley Park uh, Studio A to all 240. Huh. We, everything huh. we got, we ran the whole studio off 240 for a while. Wow! In, in uh, 2004 or five, um, just to get because he thought it had to do with electricity, and so he wanted to emulate that. So Hendrix is an important part of a guy that I worked with for 26 yeah. years. So I um, and I appreciate uh, him. I want to delve into that more, and I want to delve into. But see, the thing is, I have time, and that's the good news. You, we don't just stop and stay static. A lot of people do, but um, I think, what is it, vocabulary? A watcher may be able to look that up, but what what the average adult's vocabulary is, it stops at a certain amount of words. It, it almost it oh, I just see. stops, and it yeah. just it, people never amass any more anymore in in their their language i know the thing and, of like that that in any given language with a, a vocabulary of 500 words you can communicate most things that are necessary to communicate but that's probably not exactly what you're talking about like if you learn if you if you get a 500 word vocabulary in any in some other language you can probably you know like figure out where things are and get directions and right and stuff like that but 500 I, but but I, there's a certain number of thousand words yeah okay 2500 yeah. or 5000 words that people have and then they just that's all they they, they strive to, they're not going to look up, they're not going to take it on. It's, it's too easy to, to not to. Right. Okay. So he's, okay. The watcher <laughs> pulled it up grammar. here. He says, according to Lex, uh, lexicographer, is that how you say that? And dictionary expert, Susie Dent, the average active vocabulary of an adult English speaker is around 20,000 words. 20,000. And the passive vocabulary is around 40,000. They had to throw a word in there that <laughs> not hardly anyone would ever yeah. even know. <laughs> Lexicographer. <laughs> yeah. Just just to increase it by one. <laughs> yeah. Screw up this yeah. Well, now I have a 20,001 20, 20, word vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's it. It's just being, um, I think most people that, that, are, that listen to your podcast, that listen to the boys over at Grimerica, listen to, there's a number of them because when I really got into Randall, I just went, I just did a cursory Randall Carlson and I downloaded, you know, yeah, ev every that, yeah. single uh, Tripoli's, you know, the tinfoil hat. And I just, I hit them all right. and I had them all on in, and I just listened over and over. But I, I got just like you guys, I caught onto you because of my love of Randall. And then that, that's what happens is it sort of starts to unpack itself and start to unfold in that direction. Right. And I, I really am always attracted to curious people. People are curious people who are self-effacing, people who are um, not afraid to say, oh, I don't know, I, I, I don't know, let me learn more about that. Right. And, and not in the standard model is everything, everything is against, everything, everything is, against is known. That. Yeah. Everything right. is known. And uh, fortunately, I, yeah, fortunately, a bunch of I, have to be, <laughs> I have to be careful. I have to be careful. I have to be careful here, but I, I, the science is sort of, we're getting rid of religion. Yeah. Um, and that might not be a bad thing. Um, and because it, it, we're all, we all want to know there's something about human beings that we just want to know, but I don't think we're at the center of it all. I, I personally don't. I think we're, 
uh, and a beautiful accident and that we're able to turn it around. I don't think deer walking through a forest now are going, geez, I wonder what the tensile strength of, you know, they don't, <laughs> everything is feel. So they we're, we're able to, we, we've developed enough to turn it around. I would love to, um, I used to listen to a guy that, I, a guy for whom I have a, a great deal of respect also, a guy named Bill Munns. Does that name ring a bell? Uh, no. Bill Munns is a, um, an old creature effects uh, specialist from Hollywood. Oh, okay. And he, and he's super good at uh, film and camera work. All right. And he's like, he's an, he's an expert in both fields. And he's got this love of cryptos of, of specifically of, of Bigfoot Sasquatch. Okay. And when I listened to before I discovered you and years ago, I would listen to a lot of Bigfoot stuff because I always th found that fascinating that you, we can live nowadays and that's still out there and yeah. nobody can really debunk this Patterson film. <laughs> yeah. And so the best scientists would be ones that were for it, but we're trying to debunk it. Yeah. You know, that you, that's what you do in good science. You try and work on your own things to break your own stuff down. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Munns did this Texas Bigfoot conference thing where he spoke for, with kind of half, you know, the audio is not great, but you, he's talking about the head size. And if the eyes could see through it, the, the face couldn't up, be up that high. And when the subject turns toward the camera, there's, and they're showing movement and it, it's just so broken down. And I've, such love and respect for somebody that puts so much scientific um, work into something that everybody just giggles and, yeah. and leaves off as a, as a, a farce anyway. Right. But, um, and, uh, but it's, that, it's that way in, in meteors and the stuff Hancock's working on and yeah. all this stuff, people, I, I, I always have a big spot in my heart for people that are throw themselves passionately into something, whether or not uh, it might hurt their own reputation. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's we've, we've said before that we have no reputations to hurt, so we, we don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or any degrees on which to rely. That's, That's right. right. You get that right at the, the disclaimer goes right at the front. That's right. So it sort of gives you the out, right? It gives yeah. you the quick out. <laughs> yep. If you mess up on a guitar part, you go, yeah, I'm not a professional musician. I don't, make my living That's right. I don't have to worry. They're not like the boys, you know, these guys in, in Lee Holmes' band over in China they're, who are, have such aptitude, and it was... Um, uh, I think a stroke of uh, inspiration by Kyle, by your, your work. I, I don't know, Russ, if you're on that, that end, end theme. So many people love your end, the ending theme and all the songs. Matter of fact, my particular favorite is the one where you are tuning the, the roads, like using the, the modulation wheel on the roads. Yeah. You know, the, that uh, piece uh, yeah. Yeah. it's usually mid show. That one is sort of really ethereal and haunting and it has this great, the production of it is so great. It just puts, puts you right in this, frame of mind yeah and but the end theme everybody loves when they hear that so okay another one of the can yeah and you hear it fade up <laughs> bing, 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 bing. That's right. okay. and all of us we all we all kind of go oh, damn it's over you know but <laughs> at the but, same but time you're like hearing that theme it's and theme. so when i was in china i might as well break right into the story i was there and i'm on a trip and i thought man i love this theme i wonder if these guys would send it to me i'm just going to email them see if they'd send it to me and then you were nice enough to send it and then i had the guys uh the band yeah. learn it and they learned it in minutes because they're all either doctored or they're all either degreed from berkeley or some esteemed music school oh, yeah. so they just look at each other and go uh f major seven you know yeah, six, yeah. Add, add nine <laughs> and then there's 11 and then there's a turnaround a b section and they kind of like a football huddle they go okay hut and i said guys will you do me a favor there's these guys have a great podcast i'm fans of theirs will you just play this song so so i think at the end of the show you'll hear their version that's right. one take yeah of of the guys doing the end song in a live, and this is in where was it? Yancheng or or you know Shenyang? 
Yeah, Shanghai. Yeah. You sent me an enormous, an enormous place. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was probably seventy thousand seats. It was uh, during the day on a Friday. Um, I had the guys play that, and I just used the talkback. I said, "Guys, can you do that now?" And Michael, the uh, the bass player, said, "Yeah, let's do it, guys. Ready? All right, Jack, you start it out." And he starts the guitar <laughs> lick, and I was recording it. Yeah, and I just recorded. So when you hear it, it's actually in a stadium, not produced, not remixed, straight. You know, and that's how I I ended up doing a Prince. Uh, I'm really proud of that box set. Prince had a a three disc box set called One Night Alone Live that when I would turn in the DAT recordings every night of the Prince show or the after shows, I would just turn them in for cataloging and for him to send back to Paisley Park. I didn't know it was going to become a record. It was uh, only later that, that Prince's assistant called and said, he wants to see you out in Studio A. And I drove into Paisley Park and he was in Studio A listening to what I knew was my mix of the live show. And he said, he turned it down after a while and said, I'm going to release this as my first live record. You should wow. be really proud of this. I said, thanks, man. So he did it without, he did it without a net. He just did use my recordings of it. That's how this was. I just had the guys record live and, and, um, as sort of an ode to you. And I, I <laughs> yeah. sweet that you said, well, I don't know. You said, I don't know. I have to talk to Kyle. It's his thing. Yeah. And I want to know if he he'll allow it. And I said, you guys will be playing a stadium. Your music will be playing in a stadium <laughs> yeah. in China. where probably may not even be allowed you know, right. or have to be cleared first. So we, we did it and it was great fun. It's kind of an ode to you guys, man. It was so awesome too. And we got it. So, so my friend, uh, Daniel and I recorded that song. Uh, in, in a night, just like kind of made it up and laid it down. And the original file is like 20 minutes long of us just jamming. Yes. These two different riffs. And uh, I just went in and I cut it down to, a, I don't know, what it is it? Four to six minutes or something. Four minutes long, maybe. Um, picked the best of the best parts out and just sort of spliced it together out of this 20-minute jam session that we did. And uh, I put the keyboard in it and but we had this other funk song or funky song yeah. that we were jamming on at the end of the podcast for a while. And it was like, oh, well, this is the new outro music. You know, it's, yeah. it's got to be a funk song or yeah. something funky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when we got like we we were having a rehearsal that night when you asked for the song and we sent it over and then the next morning we're going to play a show. And Russ is like, oh. He sent the song. Yeah. And we're like, what? <laughs> Already? Yeah. Yeah. And we played it. Daniel and I were driving to the show together. We put it in his truck and played it. And we just, it just blew shit. our minds. Yeah. <laughs> shit, 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 purple turtles. That's that right. <laughs> it totally blew our I, minds. We're I like, knew, I knew Kyle was going to say yes, but it is his, I wasn't in, I wasn't playing in that song. Right. No, so that's when permission. you, when that's you good. asked, I, like I was like, let me that. make sure that Kyle's going to say, it. and I knew Kyle was going to be like, fuck yes, but I just had to, <laughs> you know, I couldn't just, uh, so I knew, and that's exactly what he did. He was like, him and Daniel were both like, well, hell yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> dude, it was it's become this hallmark, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's bittersweet because all of us who listen to your podcast, that's the, that, that's, that's the cute. lobbying way of us going, oh, shit, it's over. You know? <laughs> yeah. I gotta go. I hope it's on autoplay. And especially when I'm listening on my computer at night in China, I'll have one of your shows playing and then I'm in bed and I hear this music come up and I go, I, the, my first thought is, man, I hope it's on autoplay. So then it can just jump to the next jump episode. to the next one. <laughs> Otherwise I have to get up and run across the room and hit the, you know, turn, it, turn on the next one. And so what is it, do you think, what is it that you guys, and maybe you can answer for the Grimerica guys as well. What is it that makes people attracted to your shows? What do you think it is? 
I think it's the, I mean, we've always just said content, 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 you know, it's, uh, I think people are every time, like I'll just use the party scenario. Like when we go hang out at parties and we start talking about these things, these, these just these crazy mysteries, whether it's in modern science or ancient history, we're all, like you said, curious beings whether whether people are aware of it or focus a whole lot on it in their lives or not, in their leisure time at a party, if somebody's talking about some interesting mystery, they're kind of like, what, really? Is that the way things really are? And then they're like, you know, you want to know more. And so we've always just had a lot of fun with our group of friends. Every time we get together, this is all we do is we just sit around yeah. and talk about this stuff. Yeah. Or we're working on an album and we're talking about the music um, and creating something the the creating music is sort of a it's a mysterious journey as well like what can we do with this what you know so it's with with our group of friends it's what are we writing what are we rocking out and what the hell are pyramids doing there yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's right but and people it's... but but people that are not have never even looked at this stuff um when they when they join a conversation about it, they become incredibly interested. And then the next thing you know, they're starting to text you the next day, these yeah. links of stuff that they've started looking up because they're just generally, I mean, I was the same way. Like if I, before I found out that we didn't actually know what the, the great pyramid was that, that the idea that it was a tomb is a theory. I was like, what really? So then it made me way more interested in it. Because I was like, wait, we don't actually know why they were built. Right. Uh, and so I think that that's a big part of it. Like learning for me that we don't know. Learning that there is a mystery, something to be solved, more information to gather, to find, to seek out is uh, it's just it's become part of my life. I've just I'm, I'm just interested in all that. And going back to the to the podcast thing, why is this free? <laughs> <laughs> like in the early days of, of like sort of my deep dive into, or I, I would say once again, starting to try to get an education, like after I left school, you know, I just kind of put schoolwork down and started living life or learning to play an instrument or, you know, writing and just getting a job and doing stuff. I started thinking about physics and sound because I was working as a sound engineer on my own projects with my buddies. And I'm like, I, I want to learn more about acoustical physics. You know, how does all this stuff work? Uh, how do these microphones work? How do these speakers work? How does all of this work? And, and uh, so I started looking online for physics, like college physics classes that had like lectures. Mm. Sure enough, I found all of these, you could go on a university's website and go to the physics department and find like recorded lectures of, on all these physics classes from whatever university you wanted. I was just like, man, this is all free. Yeah. You don't have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to school. You can actually just download all the lectures that they record. So I started doing that. And then shortly after that, iTunes came out with iTunes U. Mm. which was the basically iTunes University. And so all the universities were just putting yeah, their different recorded. course material yeah. in into that. And it was like a podcast deal. So I just downloaded, you know, economics, uh, physics, 
all that kind of stuff. Anything that had good lectures, you know, where there wasn't too much uh, chalkboard writing. And <laughs> of course, a well, lot of it's, the... it's it's curiosity is probably just the the word of of the day here because it's being curious is really a good. That's a great trait to have. It killed the cat, but it also built a lot of cool stuff. You know, yeah. where people yeah. just this never-ending search for having. Um, um, I'm supposed to. Know, it would be better if I knew more of the physics of sound. Um, I think there's a great book called. Um, I think it's called "Why You he Why You Hear What You Hear" yeah. by Eric Heller, if I remember right. I hope I'm getting that right for him. "Why You Hear What You Hear," Eric Heller. Um, it, that really explores the scientific. Um, it's it's textbook type, uh, and yeah. and that one I've. I've gone through that over the years. I've referred back to that, but it's never really changed for me. The ultimate, ultimately what I have to do is take artistic endeavor, put it into a mechanical form in a scientific form, and then spit it out of speakers and move air and make people feel a certain way. Right. So there's at the, at the beginning and end of it, it's art, it's art going in and it's art coming out. And there's a lot of tech in the middle. And I just try and stay out of the way. I try and keep as much of that technical stuff out of the way as possible. I run a very simple setup when I mix live. Um, I try and keep things simple. I'm sure that's the, isn't that Occam's razor? Is it? No, that's the simplest explanation is the best, right? Yeah. I believe that. But I just try and keep the, things The explanation really simple. with the fewest assumptions. The fewest assumptions. Yeah. It, and I try and keep things as simple as possible so that it stays as close to the artistic endeavor as possible and moving a lot of people and making them like last night during purple rain because prince is gone there and we're in minneapolis we were near minneapolis there's a lot of people from minneapolis at the show and there's tons of purple and people are super fans they drive down they spend the night in rochester um they and during that song i can almost always look around and see people crying and that was that uh, way when he was alive too and even mixing with prince i used to sometimes get overwhelmed while i was mixing that show even after mixing it for hearing it for 20 years and, and mixing it for 10 i would still once in a while i still have um little eidetic film clips of my you know of, of tears that would drop on the soundboard just because it wow. was an emotive it, it was an emotive uh version of that song and hmm. it's it's not that way just for prince and purple rain there have been many artists that i sort of had this there was uh, uh an artist named scissor sisters they're sort of a glam gay disco band from new york um they're great and they broke up and I wish they hadn't because they were they're they'd be perfect for the time now. And um uh after Donna Summer died that night, one of the lead singers, Anna Matronic, gave this impassioned three-minute sermon almost off the cuff about Donna Summer and what she meant to gay people and gay men who treated discos as churches. And she went on on this thing and huh. I just got overcome. Yeah. By listening to this, and there was an art to her just in a three-minute speech about how why Donna Summer was such an important artist, much less disco artist. And so there's art all over the place. There's even art in how someone unpacks a scientific theory if they lay it out right, if they have passion, if they're if they do it. There's an art to our unfolding of it. Um, it's just to find the art in life and to enjoy that art for me. And after all, what I've done for you know, I mean, I've been in the business thirty years. I think I've mixed for, I've mixed for a long time. 90, uh, 94 is when I really started to mix. So I've done it for a long time. And um, uh, what I do, what I create disappears in the air. Yeah. Right. 
So it just disappears. And hopefully it affects people in whatever way they want, whether it's to move or to cry or to, you know, however they receive it. I don't, I can't walk away. I just throw my backpack over my bag and say goodbye to my tech and I walk away and I don't, I can't hold what I do. I can't show somebody a building like your dad can say, yeah, I built that bridge. Yeah. Or I did this thing. And here's that thing that's going to outlive me. What I do, I don't hold and I can't. I can now, it's changed in the last 15 years. I can create digital assets for artists. I can multi-track record them and I can present yeah. them with something by which they can make money. And certainly that I can do all that with the same gear that I'm using now. And I just need a, a Cat5, Cat6 cable to record all this. And so I'm actually paying for myself in a way because I'm allowing artists to not only am I giving them great mixes that they can utilize right away and release on, on social media, but I'm also creating digital assets for them. And that's been a change in the business over these years that I'm creating content for them, yeah. which is, which is financially monetizable, but <laughs> that's cool. never, nevertheless, it's, I don't really create something that I can hold. So that's why I took up making stained glass windows because I, I was inspired by Frank Lloyd huh. Wright. Um, I didn't know how to express my desire to go to all these right sites. Um, I haven't been to many. We were talking about what sites I've been to in China and really Xi'an and the Terracotta Warriors, the only one that I made a special trip out to see. Yeah. But um, I love that in the email exchange we had, you said, oh, you're there. Go to this. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm looking forward to that, too, because I give you a list of my cities. And then you say, oh, if you have Friday, yeah. half a day, you can make it to this place and go see these things. Because I've been to almost every Frank Lloyd Wright house that I could go to without hopping fences i've been to i've even hopped a few fences but <laughs> i go there just because i'm immersed inside when you get inside a structure and go holy shit you know yeah. like Wright did this he used the compression release tactic in this hallway and it's only eight feet but it seems like it's huge and he banded the windows in this and oh that's how he made ceilings look larger and that's and i didn't have any way of really um showing how much how interested i was in just my hobby of going around and seeing these Frank Lloyd Wright sites. So I started to build reproductions of his stained glass. Uh, and that was a way I could cool. sort of manifest a physical, uh, you know, I don't, you can't manufacture a meteorite or, or wait, is it meteor or meteorite? What is it? When it hits meteorite. the ground again? Yeah. yeah meteorites, meteorite. right. Yeah. So you can't manufacture it. You can just buy one and hold on to it and go, yeah, this flew down and hit something. Right. But, but you can't, it's, it's hard when you're able, it's, it's nice to be able to, to actually create something. Creation is a big deal. Yeah. That's why I think we're trying to figure it all out. Something or, or some entity, or as George Carlin called it, the big, the big orb or something. He just called it that. Yeah. <laughs> something out there is just pulsating with energy in it. You, we will never, we'll never really know. It's the ultimate mystery. Right. But getting there is half the fun. And the way you guys present it is ultimately incomparably thrilling to listen to the guests you have on and to listen to how their theories lay over each other. And you guys get to talk about it and talk about how all these things are unfolding. And we're in a period of great, um, all this stuff will be canonized. This will someday, somebody might listen to a podcast that you did and have figured it out. Especially I can say these, Hey, these guys figured that out. There was some guy you had on a, a couple episodes ago and he was talking about something. Who's the guy? He sounded he sounded a lot like uh, Graham Hancock. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Martin uh, Sweatman. Martin Sweatman. Dr. Martin, Martin Sweatman. Sweatman. Yeah. Great, ep great episode. And what's cool about Sweatman was that during, during at some portion, I think, Russ, I think you were saying, well, I think it's this, this, this. And he went, oh, that's, 
That's actually very interesting. <laughs> yeah, that you was, were, because you were Kyle. talking about the, that, <laughs> yeah. that was, that was Scott, and it was talking about uh, whether it was evening or morning, and right. that it might it might go against something at Hancock. It'd be interesting to note right away. I was doing something, listening to it, and I thought, now, first of all, number one, I wonder what Hancock thinks of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And secondly, that's pretty badass that the guy said that's really great. I didn't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> he also sent us a note afterwards that said that that was a fa- like that Kyle pointing out that the sun was shifted over for the, uh, for oh, right. the solstice. He he actually sent us a note afterwards saying, "Great interview, and that was a fantastic idea that that that, that the sun <laughs> shifted over. It was showing you that that was actually the solstice." So, oh, cool! Yeah, I did not know. Oh, that. yeah, I didn't tell you about it. Oh. You got yeah. in your heads already. Yeah, yeah, you got to keep that <laughs> ego in check. But <laughs> well, that's the thing is to be you know to have a sense of um, man in doing sound. I just again I have to represent. Especially I've worked with a lot of uh, maybe half, maybe a little more legacy artists than I have. <clears throat> up and coming artists. When I worked with Lady Gaga, it was, she picked me out because she loved Madonna and she knew I mixed Madonna. Ah. Um, so when I mixed Madonna, I had to stay, I tried to stay legacy sounding with her songs. Although she was in 2003, she was going through a period where she was using, she was in a phase of heavy keyboards. So even borderline, even all these classic Madonna songs had a different sound to them. They were arranged differently. Yeah. Typically. And, but when I was with Lady Gaga, she was still up and coming. I didn't have anything. There wasn't anything against which, the listener could compare. Oh, okay, I see. Their first experience at seeing, yeah. hearing Lady Gaga, when with Prince, with Earth, Wind, and Fire, with um, uh, other bands, Duran Duran, people who are legacy artists. I have to most closely match what people are going to be expecting to right. hear, and I have to work with musicians and say, "Hey, you need to remember that little bass part, or you need to don't forget this vocal lick because that's what people, the fans, are going to know." Yeah, and so it's different. I approach each artist differently, and I have to know when to work them and get them to do what I need them to do to come off as legacy because ultimately I'm an audience member. What's cool about you guys get to explore something that's unknown. It's a kind of a free for all. You can have these, um, you can really go for it and throw these things out there. And I love that Sweatman was open to accepting. Yes. That yeah. And, and admit it in, in, in an admittance saying, wow, I didn't think about that. That's great. Yeah. And I really want to know what Hancock thought about the whole, uh, those were all within one year, right? Yeah, is that was that what it was? That's right. Yeah, that the that whole is, that whole pillar is showing you one uh, the, one the setup of that of that particular year. Yeah, and yeah. my fingers crossed because I have a ton of respect for Hancock. Fingers crossed that he'll say, "Well, that, that's that's very interesting." I actually, yeah. your your Graham Hancock is a lot better. You do agree, <laughs> especially when you read back when you read back stuff. <laughs> yeah, we work on our we work on our impersonations. Yeah. People, we do I'm them a sure lot that, more off the air than we do on. I'm, it's, I'm sure the, the staff of the, uh, of China Eastern all sees me giggling in the, in my little cubby, uh, <laughs> in, at 35,000 feet. And they're wondering why, uh, Hey, I have a question for you guys, a physics question, way off topic. I was on a flight from Shanghai to LA and I, I felt a couple of really great big booms. I was, I was sleeping, but it was a boom. And I, I woke up thinking that I heard a boom, but then I woke up and nothing was there. And I, I thought, well, that was strange. And then I kind of felt it again. And so I quickly opened the monitor and I have a screenshot that we were going 804 miles per hour. And huh. I'm wondering, I never got an answer out of China Eastern. Were we at a speed? It was a, it was a Boeing 777-300ER. We were going 804 miles per hour. Were we tapping on the, the limit 
Oh, the sound, the sound barrier. Is that what's the sound? About? What's the sound barrier? 1100, what's the 1125 feet per second. So, uh, what's that in miles per hour? Watcher. <laughs> <laughs> By the what way, the watcher way? says that you're right about the book It is called why you hear what you hear. An Exper- Experiential Approach to Sound, Music, and Psychoacoustics, a book by Eric J. Heller. There you go. Yeah. So, so it's, um, that, that's a fun, it's a fun book. It's a little bit academic, so you kind of lose people if you, you know, you, they're like, oh, man, I spent tons of money on this tome. And I 767 yeah. miles per hour. Well, there you go. Yeah. I suppose with a tailwind, that would allow us to get, of course, faster, but... yeah. Uh, I woke up for some reason, and it was a couple of booms. And so you guys broke I the had, sound barrier in that plane. I saw the I saw the screenshot. I mean, I still had the screenshot, and I was freaked out, but kind of happy in a way. You yeah, know, you're like, like hey, oh, I'm supersonic. Yeah, I'm is that plane designed to go? What kind of plane was it? He said it was a triple seven three hundred ER. I didn't wow. know that commercial airlines could break is the, the sound, sound barrier. Is the is the sound barrier the same up there at thirty thousand feet? There's a good question. Well, it's I it's think it changes be pretty close to the same, but oh, okay. I mean, it, yeah, it'll it'll change a little bit with the the difference in pressure because that's at one atmosphere, right? Yeah, sound the sound travels seven sixty seven at one atmosphere. It's gonna be something else up high, uh, where the atmosphere is a lot thinner. But I don't know how yeah. much it changes. Yeah, I don't either. But it was booms you were hearing as opposed to like jolting. There was no 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 shuddering or anything involved with it. No, it was no. The second one, I must, I might have missed the first yeah, shutter because right. because it's what woke me up. And I yeah. woke up and I thought, what did I? Why did I just wake up? I felt like it was a big boom. Yeah, or it was some sort of. And then and then it went boom, and I felt oh, wow. felt another, and I thought, oh no, this is not good. So <laughs> I pulled out my phone to sort of do my quick. Hey babe, tell the girls. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> Love you. And and then I got the screen out and got the screenshot of it. Got a little video of it changing. And and um, yeah. So the watcher says not, it's seven or it's six hundred and seventy-eight at thirty thousand feet. Yeah. So if you're going eight hundred, you're way past it, for sure. I think Supersonic Scotty is a that's <laughs> yeah. A little, Supersonic Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> It works. It does. The alliteration is always fun. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and and it's you uh, know it's a play on your your profession. All right. right. It's so supersonic, buddy. So, come on, super sound. <laughs> super <That's> sound. Right. <laughs> I have a uh, a physics tangent for you. Okay. Um, so I like to think about sound, specifically music, um, as as a three dimensional. It's it's like when it's coming out of that speaker, it's coming out in a in a spherical shape, right? The the waves yes. are curved, and so they're expanding out like a bubble away from the speaker. Right. But the waves there's there's pressurized air and rarefied air. You know the the speaker cone is pushing forward and it's pressurizing the air in front of it, and then it pulls back and draws a vacuum. It rarefies the air. And those are the waves that are that are traveling out away from the speaker. Well, the the motion is obviously music is is timed. It's it's temporal, right? Yes. So it's a type of architecture. You're building this set of very precise timed pressure waves, uh, and in terms of dynamics, there's different pressures in every wave front. 
different sets of pressure. So it's like, I like to think of it as, as sort of a temporal architecture, three-dimensional, and it's coming out. You're building this massive, like when you get that sound mixed and the, the band starts to play, you can imagine like if you could see it from space or from 30,000 feet in your supersonic Scotty jet, <laughs> it, there's this dome of architecture just growing out of that venue as you yes. are mixing that shell. Yeah. And the way you experience it is by passing through it. By you passing through it. That's yeah, right. Right. I love that idea. Yeah, it's um it's uh and every frequency has a different uh, size and depth. Right. You know, so treble doesn't travel far. It's, right. Yeah. That's why the guy going by or the person going Here's by in the their bass. car and you can hear the bass. It's it's a lot longer and I forget what the I don't know my wavelength uh, at my actual uh, uh, watcher would know what a 60 hertz tone, yeah. how long that wave is and what the second yeah, it's like 13 uh, generation. Feet. Yeah. I thought it was longer, but it, it's, <laughs> it depends on which one you catch it. Um, uh, but also being immersed in that is one thing. And, um, uh, in, I have to look at different crowds and what they want and then give them what will move them physically as well. So oh, yeah. the the aforement the, the the band I mentioned earlier, Scissor Sisters, it was gay glam disco, um, lots of four on the floor stuff and disco music. Yeah. So I made sure I sort of architecturally built that from the bottom up. I first put the power in the low end where I needed it to be, and then appropriately put the mids and highs, we'll say, um, on top of that so that it was right for the volume of the low end. Um, yeah. Gaga, same thing. I built from the bottom up. Um, the Fray, who's a, a rock group from Denver area, uh, they've had a, they had a few big hits. Uh, How to Save a Life and Cable Car, they had some big hits. And they um, uh, theirs was a top down mix. I really got the got the mix at the right volume through the hanging speakers and then through the subs. I kind of brought those up to match them in volume. Prince, uh. oddly, for an R and B artist, or Prince was a you know, there was, it was rock, it was funk, it was R&B, it was many things. Prince wanted to build it from the top down. He didn't like what he called woofers. <laughs> no, I don't like woofers. No, just, and he said the one and the three, the kick drum, one, three, one, three. You know, he, he yeah. said that sucks all the air out of the room. Yeah. And he's right. He couldn't describe it physics, in physics, but he, nor can I, but it just, it, it, you're just sapping all the energy out of an enclosed room on the one and the three every time the kick drum set. So mm -hmm. when you're doing that, you're pressurizing your ears. You yeah. can't hear. That's that right. They, so, yeah. They, the, so, the, the, the eardrum gets more rigid, the louder, the, the, those lower tones that are so it's like moving a, it. So it's then, like it, then it's compression. not, a, yeah, it's a natural, yeah. your, your natural compression. Yeah. And so, so in, in doing that, when he described it like that, I said, okay, I get what you mean, man. I get it. Now let me sort of do this. So I would, I would cut sub lows off and I would make it more punchy. I would make it punch and sound like, and Prince would say, Hey, I want it to sound like a bass drum, Scotty. Don't call it a kick drum, call it a bass drum. It's just a lower drum that keeps time. So surprisingly at Prince shows, there wasn't a ton of sub low that would make, but I think a lot of engineers, what they do is they, they make the mistake especially inexperienced engineers, they can be old or young. Um, they make the mistake of, of confusing volume and power for clarity, sonic clarity. Yeah. And, and they, they compress everything. They put a lot of uh, plugins. They put a lot of hardware and software on things so that they're, 
they're sort of compressed and then they turn it up. So I, my show is always breathe a little bit more because I want that experience to be live so that you actually can feel it. But it, no one ever leaves the shows that I mix and their ears hurt. Right. I mean, I've had people actually write me and say, Hey, thanks. You know, we brought our family to that show last night. I found your email through your website. Thanks for not making our ears ring. Can't believe they didn't ring just because I, plus I still think we're one lawsuit, you know, successful lawsuit away from all having caps on volume. Anyway, I got to tell you about <laughs> uh, where you guys mostly see shows is Austin, right? If you were to go to a show, you go to Austin. Is that basically? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a pretty good place. There's some places in San Antonio that's closer, but you know, Austin. Yeah. There's a, I did a show in Austin once the, the opening act, man, I forgot who I was mixing at the time, but the opening act was, didn't have an engineer and they asked me to engineer it, but that wouldn't have been cool of me to do that and charge what I charge the main act yeah. and then charge them less. So I said, no, no, we'll just have the local tech from every city mix it. So I was in Austin at some newer play, newer venue in Austin. And so I've been hearing this opening act band every single day and different engineers mixing it. And it was always varying degrees of acceptable, sometimes it's unacceptable. And yeah, but they just didn't have money to pay. I think the name of the act was Oh Honey or something. They might have had one or two hits. So they didn't have money to pay him. So they would just use the 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 house engineer. I'd say, hey, you're mixing the opening act on your own desk today. I'd say, okay. Well, we got down to Austin. There was an old guy who rolled in a soundboard, small soundboard, 32 channel sound craft or something. He rolled it over and he said, hey man, I'm the local guy. I'm gonna, I'm mixing the opening act, I guess. Or you, and I said, yeah, hey man, um, you want to set your, do you have an effects rack or something you want to set on, on the riser here? And he's like, no, I just got a little, I got a couple of reverbs. And I said, well, do you have gates and compressors? Do you have stuff you want to, no, no, I'm just going to mix it pretty, you know, old school. And I said, oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> so the band does a sound check. And it was, as it continued in the show, it was one of the top five mixes I've ever heard in my life. Wow. And I just looked down at this guy and I, and he didn't know that I had a big fat resume or he didn't recognize me. Sometimes house, house engineers, they're like, Hey man, are you, did you make so-and-so? And, -so? and uh, yeah. I read an article, da, da, da. but this guy had no idea. And I just said, I have to tell you, man, this is like, thank you for letting me know that it's not in the gear. It's in the ear. Like yeah. He just, that, and he just went, <laughs> Oh man, but he knew what he was doing. It wasn't accidental. I saw him use the way he used things and that he put just the right reverb on it. He didn't have any gates or compressors and for those people that don't understand that it's stuff that would shut off channels from ringing and if you hit a a tom you know a rack tom or a floor tom or something it could just start to run all over the yeah. room and start to feedback this guy did it all with nothing and it was still and i've been to shows and been invited to shows i'd go see um who's the uh cirque du soleil you go to see their shows and they're fully immersive it's they're mixing an 11 2 uh, sometimes I've, I've, one of their shows, I think was in 20, you, you talk about Dolby 5.1, they, they mix in 22, two. Holy crap. So there's, you're just in multiple fields and sounds can go all over the place and it's really cute, but we still just have two ears. Yeah. So the, the, the solving <laughs> issues of live sound usually comes down to stereo program, high volume. It's really simple. And as my colleague and friend, Susan Rogers always says, she mixed studio mixes for Prince. She mixed Purple Rain. She mixed a lot of these classic Prince albums. She said, Scotty, the best do the most with the least for the longest. Huh. <laughs> That's and really cool. That is cool. And Short when you remember little things like that, it this guy next to me, I, 
I'll, I won't remember his, I kind of, I'm kind of glad I don't know him or tried to keep in touch with him. He changed my, there was a paradigm shift. I thought if you can do it with that, you know? Yeah. And, and I, it was, I was stupefied. I couldn't believe he just did an amazing job. So did you end up with like a trash can full of gear at the end of that? Are <laughs> you like throwing things away? I don't need this. I, don't I need still, this. <laughs> I still do it with one small digital console and even Lee home, uh, his, his, the guy's name is, his name is Lee home Wang W A N G. He's a, he's a Taiwanese American artist. He's huge in China. He's got, I, he's got to have a billion fans in China. He's, he's bigger, I would say than beyond he's, who Beyonce wants to be, you know, he's got a billion fans. Yeah. He's the shows are that big. And, um, um, he's a, just a fantastic artist with a ton of knowledge and a graduate of, of Williams at Berkeley. And so he's got a vast and he's mastered. I mean, he's, he speaks English like we do with no accent. Oh, As yeah. a matter of fact, I talked to him on the phone for the first time and I went, Oh, and then I heard him in concert and I went, Oh, and it's, 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 <laughs> there's no accent in either language. So he's, he's a master and he's just the nicest guy and, and super musical. But I, I, I'm not saying it cause I'm working with him now. He's the most musical person with whom I've ever worked. That says a lot. Um, and Lee Holmes said, well, can you do the show without breaking the bank for me? And like, you can do a lot on this desk. That's cost 20 grand. Do you need the $150,000 desk? And I said, no, cause I readily look forward to that challenge. I said, sure. I can make a, yeah, I can make it a, 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 a stadium show sound great with this. The, uh, the best do the most with the least for the longest. Yeah. I've always wanted to take Randall's sacred geometry classes. You know, you get that yeah. thing and do it. And all you need, right, is a protractor. <laughs> yeah. A compass and a square. A compass and a square. And an infinite um, amount of paper. That's the other thing you got. You have right. a huge stack of copy paper. So, <laughs> and Because that stuff to me is fascinating. I'm glad that the interests, or I guess, and hobbies that I have are, are ones of thought. You know, I can just think and ruminate about different theories and just try and imagine. You guys had an episode where you... Um, the way you talked it out, I don't know the episode and I don't know what it was about. What you were basically saying, okay, picture this, picture you're here. And then over and you, you laid out some sort of scenario where you actually talked it through yeah. where you were picturing you were somewhere and, and the sun moves this way or you're it, whatever it was. And I remember listening to that and saying, good job. Like you're, you're putting the listener in a position of understanding it. I mean, after listening to you guys for, for so long now, I woke up one morning kind of in a jet lag, but my, our bed, my wife and I are bed, I guess our feet are facing south. We have these facing windows. I woke up after a trip and I kind of looked to the east and I taught my daughters already. I said, listen, the sun doesn't rise and set. It, it, it does in a sense, but it, it doesn't move. It doesn't move across the sky. We're actually turning. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what creates movement. But we think that the sun rises and sets, but that's just like humans to think everything has to do with where we are. Right. <laughs> but that's right. I said, it's actually the earth spinning. So when I woke up in this sort of jet lag stupor, I remember I woke up alone because they had all been up already. And I kind of looked and the sun was peeking in the window. And I realized that I was kind of laying on the earth and the earth was spinning. Yeah. Yeah. And on I, the I axis. threw my arms out <laughs> like I was up against a wall. I went, yeah and i thought holy Whoa. shit i'm i'm in for this ride and, and it, <laughs> yeah i wouldn't have done that had i not been so turned around by the time but we're on this spinning thing yeah that's flying incredibly you guys know all the numbers <laughs> but it's fun to think that we're along for this yeah 
and it's fun to think that that I even got in contact with you guys over a green laser saying, hey, yeah, Randall's <laughs> going over this list. It's so cute for him to say or sweet for him to go, well, I'll need a whiteboard. Yeah. <laughs> you think you have chalk? <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah. I mean, can can somebody get this man some chalk? Can somebody get him a, a, a dry erase? Because. And I thought, but I thought, hey, the, what they'll want are green lasers. And of course, the ones I get in China are super pop. You know, they go for, I mean, I've done it where I'm pretty sure it's well over a mile. Where oh, I wow. still saw about a 12 foot diameter green dot on a building that was over a mile away. And <laughs> and they're 20 bucks in China. And here oh, you man. can't even really get them. But you got something, Russ. You said you got something. I got something there. and it was actually, what it was, was the best one I could find was a, uh, it's actually also meant to mount on a rifle. Right. So it's actually a laser sight as well. Uh, and it's powerful, but not that powerful. So I'd love for you to you. I'll, oh, I've got a, I've got a whole box of them here. I'll send a couple down. Oh, that would be great. Ah, one yeah. up boxes. <laughs> yeah, that would be great because I got one. It was pretty good, but it wasn't it wasn't that good. It wasn't a mile yeah. off. I mean, this one may not be as it, it is impressive, though. And what I did, of course, I had to do this. As soon as I charged up all the batteries, I put a rubber band around all of them. And I put them all on at one time and I went outside. <laughs> <laughs> all of them at once. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, I had 10, super laser. <laughs> 10 beams. It was too bad. They, they crossed a little bit, but it was still fun to Dumb. see that. Never I'm sure they would have seen it in a plane. It's slightly illegal to point those at planes. Yeah, I might add, so. it is. It is slightly illegal. Um, but uh, um, it's just, uh, I'm, there are a lot of people out there and I, I you never hear from, you hear about it on the iTunes um, reviews and you hear about, you know, direct emails, but there are a bunch of us out here that appreciate you too very much for your curiosity and have your parents to thank. There was some episode where you're talking about home being homeschooled yep. and that your mom would actually get you really actively involved and engage in yeah. experiments and doing things like that. And that's hugely important. And it's um, foundationally and structurally, you guys are built seemingly from a very solid foundation you know, you're not upside down as Frank Lloyd Wright would say, you're from the bottom up and as people. And that, which leads me to believe you're good people and that you're good husbands and that you're good parents if you have kids. And those th kind of things all work from an architectural standpoint. Even when I mix sound, I try and mix architecturally, fundamentally, not only rudiment, just from a low end over high end thing. Let's build this from the low end. Let's build this from the high end. But also just foundationally try and make things constituted in a strong structure from the bottom up so that people can enjoy shows like they did last night, like they do in China on a weekly basis, um, and that they can take it in. And it's not too much of one thing and not enough of another. Right. You try and make this balance. Out. Be balanced. I used to think that a triangle, somebody I heard years ago when I was young that, oh, the triangle is the strongest geometric shape. You know, it can't be crushed. You try and crush it and it just moves and. And, all that. and I thought, well, that's a cool little thing to hang on. It has no scientific basis, but it yeah. sounds good. <laughs> and, and music is all triangles and harmonies. And I thought that was pretty cool to say. But then when, upon hearing that the circle, if you do it five times and you move the compass five times around, wasn't Randall talking about that? Yep. And that it creates every shape. And it starts to lead me to, you know, get that finger goes up on the chin. Like, huh, that maybe the circle is the strongest thing. Maybe yep. the circle is the is the secret to it all. Maybe things are that simple. And it's that's why we build bathyspheres, right? So like for deep sea diving, you the the, the thing that can withstand the pressure the best way down there is a freaking ball. Uh, that's structurally, it's the strongest because all the pressure coming in from all sides, it's able to resist it in a perfectly even way. So we build bathyspheres, a sphere that you can get inside and it just sinks down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. 
you know, if you tried to build a tube or a, a cube or any other shape, it you, we all might be able flat to do it. Sides. All these flat sides, you have real structural problems in resisting that pressure. But a sphere is the structurally the soundest for that kind of. What is the name of the cage that people go in so that they magnetically can't be interfered with? That's a Faraday cage. Faraday cage. Yeah. Is is there some? And that's proven, and that works, and that's a yeah. real thing. Yeah, it'll blo it blocks all yeah electromagnetic spectrum. Except for and then visible light. I mean, it, I think there's a, a level at which it stops working. Yeah. So. And is there some uh, theory? And I'm, I'm just because I have questions. It's kind of fun for me to ask you questions yeah. live. Um, is there something about <laughs> we are a being interviewed for you, the first time? <laughs> if you if you have a if you have a pyramid and you put something under it or above it, they things can change at different rates. Yeah. Is so I've, anything I've, I've heard that we have we want to run our own experiments. I have seen lots of. And read lots of things. People talking about that. If you build a sort of a, if you build a, a, a structure that's just the outlines of a pyramid, and you put uh, say an apple inside of it, and then you have an apple sitting outside of it, that the apple outside will rot, whereas the one inside the pyramid will just sort of desiccate. It won't actually rot. I've read that and heard that. We want to do our own experiments and see. But yes, there and there and there's even other experiments showing that you you can use different shapes and other stuff happens too. Like you build a cylinder shape and try it and. So on and so forth. So I want to. I want to try it. I can't. I won't say for sure on the show that that works, but I have read and heard it a lot. So yeah, I don't know. I'm skeptical. I, uh, yeah, we're both skeptical. Skeptical, but I want to try it. I wonder if the uh, the sphere, because we don't, because it's such an inefficient thing to build a, a, a structure that you can actually go in and be housed in in a sphere, whether or not that has any sort of um, atmospheric, yeah. Uh, impact where right. you know you can't build houses out of spheres it doesn't right. <laughs> it's completely inefficient yeah. it's just well with the age of 3d printing you know soon we will be able to have sphere houses <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine nothing would stay on any shelf it's ever in <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when I was. And younger. then there will be a massive conspiracy that the, your entire neighborhood. No, these are flat houses. All these houses are actually discs. <laughs> <laughs> I actually remember I, when I was younger. I thought it would be cool to have a to have a, a sphere, an actually spherical building that was completely separate from the ground. So I drew out this structure where you basically hung it, where it was suspended. Yes. Uh, Stupid idea for all. I mean, plumbing became an enormous problem, right? You, how, <laughs> yeah. you got to things have to connect to the ground, and then you're starting to think about a sphere hanging from some structure, and then you've got tubes and pipes going down into the ground. Anyway, it was a bad idea, but an interesting one, fun to play with. It's it's. Uh, I love Frank Lloyd Wright's Guggenheim Museum for for one reason. Wright always uh, reached for the more artistic uh, sensibility to any structure, and when you're in a right structure. You feel that. You feel that sense of connection. Yes. You feel all sorts of Well, Wright built the Guggenheim in New York City, which was basically giving the finger to all these other structures that had to adhere to the block mentality uh, yeah. and square mentality. So he builds this Guggenheim, and anybody that doesn't know about it, when you look at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, it's round. It looks like a washing machine, yes. But what Wright <laughs> intended you on doing was go in, take an elevator to the top, and as you walked around, you had a seamless experience of the art on the way down that's cool and then the lights above uh above the um the area in which you're walking um the ever the light there would be open there'd be windows so that the light was ever changing so they didn't control uh. because when you go in a museum everything is square and rectilinear and you go in and you experience you stand in front of a painting and you go 
yes. And then you have to back up and turn and walk around the guard and go into the next room and turn and then fade. There's a lot of right angles and right angles are wretches. They're, they're wrenches for architects. They, they, it, making any sort of right angle turn is always kind of a, unless it's done on purpose to, to delay your entry into a, a position. Yeah. Um, Wright used to use it. Uh, he built a party house once for a woman in uh, Springfield, Illinois, and he had you come in and you were able to look up and see almost on a dais almost that people were partying. And then he made you take a left and a right and another right. And you were elevating yourself up the stairs all the way. So you saw what you were going to go through. Then you had to make a couple of right angle turns to get up. <laughs> and so cool. it gave you time to prepare to get up to be this. He did that a lot in church structures as well in Oak Park, the Unity Temple. So uh, if, when that's on purpose, it's beautiful because it's artistic and it, there's a sensibility of uh, blowing out the box and changing building techniques. Your dad probably knows about right and knows about these things. But um, uh, to the Guggenheim, I always I always think, yeah, it looks cool and it's white and it looks amazing. But really, the intention was to was walk around and yeah. seamlessly view art. Yeah, the watchers, without interruption. The watcher's throwing a couple of pictures up here of it. So we're looking at it. It's a very interesting looking structure. You're right. And it's surrounded by all these blocks and cubes. And there's <laughs> this, right. this round flowing thing right there. So yeah, Wright's <laughs> ego, um, he gets, he gets uh, the knock on him is that he had a huge ego. I actually think he, my own theory is that he had a very um, beautiful soul. He was just covered by the shell, like magic shell. You put it on ice cream. You get this ice cream inside that's nice and soft and what you want to enjoy. And then the magic shell is the stuff you put on that's hard. He had <laughs> yeah. a sort of a bravado, he put, <laughs> but he, but he never had big phallic entrances or a lot of uh, columns and things. And it, he didn't have tall, proud entrances. His entrances are always obstructed in a way. And you had a lot of side angles that you would go into the houses. And so he, and he made you feel this reverence for small places that actually felt big. They, they, um, there's something really beautiful about that. And so he may have come off as this architect with a lot of bravado and, and um, made all these wild claims and did all these fantastical things in his life. But he, his architecture really spoke to the fact that he was rooted constitutionally in humility and uh, not in being proud and being large. And I think scientists are probably the same way. The ones that are doing the best work most diligently coming up with the coolest stuff, the Jimi Hendrix of the world, the people that are that are on artistic boundaries. They're ones that are aiming for something. They're going for something that's greater than that. Uh, what is that? Who said imitation can never be greater than that of its model? That's one for the watcher. One. Imitation can never be greater than that of its model. And maybe it was Emerson, somebody like that. But that makes sense. That. Yeah. If you're doing an imitation, you're never going to, if you're imitating something, it's never going to be better than what you're imitating. It can't so, <laughs> so the real the people that are changing the world are are the are the ones that are that are not going after imitation. They're actually unafraid. People like Hancock, people right. like Mavericks. Sweatman, people yep. Mavericks. Yeah, and that's the one. Those are the ones we remember. It's easy to remember them if they're Jobs or if they're Musk or they have a lot of commas in their bank account. <laughs> um, but the people that that like Nikola Tesla, who died, you know. Yeah. Broke, broke, broke in a hotel broken, room, broke and broken. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And who really changed the world more than, I mean, you two must look up to him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, more yeah. than just about We've done a lot of tests. Still... I got a, uh, a binder up there full of all of his patents. Yeah. And it's incredible. It's like 500 patents that you can, you can get that are still in the patent office. And he, uh, they're just like, he, you know, out. he's got these diagrams of this stuff he's coming up with and you, you flip the page and then he's got like two pages writing all about it yeah, and what explaining it's, it. It's fantastic. How he arrived at it and what, I mean, it's just, it's incredible to read through I these mean, patents. They, 
they they come up they, they those people come up um certainly in the scientific world uh just like the artistic world once in a yeah yeah uh, and not even in a generation generations 25 years it's not even in once a generation it's maybe once a once once every century yeah possibly so i wanted to say uh um Going back to something you said earlier about, you know, there's a guy and he's a corporate dude or whatever, but he goes home and he picks up his bass and maybe he's got a band or, you know, he does something artistic. He's got this hobby or this this interest. And there's there's like you were saying, you like you, you, you had to have an outlet for art for your creative self. Right. Yes. So with uh, and you've probably heard Randall talk about this as well. But there's this thing about philosopher scientists. Uh, Bo- Bosley was also big on this when we talked to him that there's. That there's a difference between what he call, what Walter Bosley calls them. The, 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 you got the philosopher scientists, and then you have like the the, the techs, right? The, the, the there's there's a difference between the bean counters and the button you know counters or whatever, the bean counters and button pushers versus the philosopher scientist. And uh, the philosopher scientist, if you look back in history, all these the great names of science previous to the Industrial Revolution were also painters and virtuoso violinists and people who could compose uh, poetry and and did on a regular basis put out great things of art, as well as being interested in natural and in, in natural philosophy, what they call natural philosophy, which is what we call science now. So they would approach the world in a very scientific way, but then they would turn around and paint these gorgeous. Sometimes you know we still revere them today. Their works like Da Vinci. You know, these guys were were both. And, and what you were talking about, like the 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 artistic way of being able to to um, to be able to convey. So like you go out into this into the world and you study nature with your engineer's mind, with your scientist's mind, and then you turn around and use your artist's ability to convey what you've learned. Yeah, and, and right. a lot of times in their art they conveyed like deep principles yeah. about nature which you can't just do that as you know a guy who just gets good with a paintbrush you really have to be able to observe yeah nature in a scientific manner in order to be able to take to to learn some fundamental principle of it and, and then it, and then, and then it comes uh, to your point in addition to that <clears throat> it's how you get there to be inspired as an artist because in the music business there's a lot of um people have reliances on, on chemicals, substance. And there's a history of people, I call it being in ceremony, um, that, to use substance to get them to a mindset to create all these kind of cool artistic, yeah. but not just artistic endeavor. I think that's important. And I myself haven't partaken. I've been high twice in my life. It was on acid both times. And it was two of the most memorable days I've ever had. I started right, I just went, oh, I eat this, eight hours. <laughs> And I had it all figured out. Right? <laughs> and then it yeah. wore off. And I went, oh, man. Oh, man. I forgot what I'm it just, was. I'm just supersonic Scotty. You know? <laughs> and so, um, but I navigated 30 years in the music industry without partaking. Yeah. And, um, and just, just drinking, moderate drinking. I understand completely where Hancock is coming from, where people are coming from and saying that, uh, or um, stress, who wrote the D, uh, spirit module? Uh, spirit oh, molecule. Yeah. That's um, Strassman. Strass- yeah, Strassman. Strassman. Like yeah, something like that. Yeah. So I understand wanting to explore that, so that you puts you at this zenith, at this um, in an artistic sensibility, that is a creative 
and it puts you in a create a state of creativity yeah. to then to then think of these thoughts that hadn't been thunk before. Yeah. So to speak. <laughs> but but that's what gets you there. And that that is what propels us into that. And don't think like you guys know more than I do about this. That was going on, that's been going on forever. Yes. So it sometimes that inspiration comes in different forms. Um, I find it best when I work where I'm um I'm on the straight and narrow because I have to take all this artistry and artist's behavior. I call it artistic behavior. You take that behavior and I have to manage that. And it's done best when I'm managing it and I'm on the last line of defense before sound hits a crowd. So I want to be responsible in that respect. You get where I'm going with it. Yes, I understand what you're saying. But to think in a creative mode and to use ceremony to get us there, whether whatever, whatever that substance is, I think that's an important part of the past and it will be an important part of the future people are able to think out of the box using whatever means they do to get to where they have to be to think that certain way it's important so i like the idea of, of i like the idea of it being ceremonial like that's that's really key right you know you have you have a we're talking about uh entheogens gins or 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 uh psychoactive substances so people using them on the outsides, the edges of society, it ends up being a party thing. It ends up being uh, not important or may, maybe it changes people's lives sometimes. But it, and for most, for the most part, it is a something that people do when they're young and it is a, a fringe thing. It's always at the outside outskirts of civilization, right? It's always sort of hidden from the rest. You don't do it openly. You kind of do it out, out at the parties in the warehouses or whatever it is that's happening. But yeah. when it's ceremonial and it's at the center of a culture, and it becomes an important thing that it, that is sort of revered, and it, so and so now it becomes a tool that's very very uh, powerful. Then it can be used more likely in the right way, like what you're talking about is ceremonial as opposed yeah. to fringe, right? And like making yeah. it ceremonial brings it to the center of a culture, whereas like if you if you if you sh- if the culture shuns it, it becomes uh, it goes out to the edges invariably. Yeah, I'm not sure even how I feel about it. I've never guessed, I've never thought about it, how I feel about it, it being more pervasive now in our culture, where it's where things are, are legalized and things are, I think, in, yeah. in one way, I think, oh, great, you know, it's just going to become the norm now. And then the other part of me says, great, yeah. people are free to decide one way or the other, yeah. decide what they want. I'm ultimately for that, you know, that, that freedom and that liberty. So, uh, but it does get people to an artistic uh, sensibility. It, it allows people to break the boundaries of uh, constraint of thought. It, it leads me back to something that interesting to me that Prince said on a, in a different way on a different subject where he said, um, Scotty, I want to, I need a song of mine in C major. And I said, okay, I could never take the place of your man. And he said, and that's in C major. I said, yeah, I think so. It sounds like it is. And he <laughs> said, Oh, do you have, do you have perfect pitch? And he said, and I said, no, I, I have great, great relative pitch, but that's, that feels like C major to me. And he, um, I said, do you? And he said, no, I don't have perfect pitch. And he said, what about read? Do you read? And I said, no, I used to, when I played yeah. trumpet or I played cornet. I said, as a kid, I, I knew how to read, but I've let it go. And now I don't read anymore. Do you read? And he said, no. And I said, well, maybe you should think about picking it up. I mean, if you learn to read now, it might be cool. I said, Bobby McFerrin learned how to conduct orchestras and he won Grammys for it after he came back. He had already won Grammys. Yeah. And he came back and won more Grammys. <laughs> and he said, no, if I learned how to read music now, it would change the way I write. 
and I influence so many people with the way I write right now, I don't want this to change. And huh. I thought that was, that was either a lazy answer, an answer of laziness. I don't think it was. He, is, he was thinking thoughtful about the, his canon of work and how it would change if he learned the rules, the constrictions. Yeah. The confides yeah. and how, how structurally we're held in. It's it's uh, people that push the fringe. I mean, that push the edges are the ones that I I always root for. Those people, the people that say how much how far can we push this cantilever out? How yeah. <laughs> how much can we think outside of the box? And then on top of that, they say I'm going to shoot my car into space with a guy sitting in the front seat of it forever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That right. Tesla is going to be out there forever. I agree. It's like right? if you don't know if you don't know the rules, then you don't know you're breaking them. You know, so it's it's that's that's exactly right. That the, the if you don't know you're doing something wrong, then then you're more likely to do it. Right. And and I'm talking about wrong in terms of convention, not convention, not wrong morally or whatever. Right. And that's what standard model scientists are doing: is they're creating yeah. convention, or they live in, they're steeped in convention, and they won't allow themselves through ego or whatever yeah. to not let themselves be, you know, it takes a really courageous person to say, you know, they might be right. Right. They could be right. And I think that, um, or I could be wrong. Know, that's what's really or hard. I could be, yeah, yeah. That's even, that's even stronger. So yeah. I appreciate Sweatman and what he said to, about Kyle, about what you said. And, um, and I think ultimately uh, my hope is that Hancock years down the road, will be remembered as being the visionary of this sort of, and the purveyor of, of all these kind of thoughts that lead people to really go out of their way to, yeah, you know, to not too. be afraid. I, I yeah. thought it was really great also in Sweatman's book, how he again and again referred to Hancock's yeah. work on mm. these subjects and sparking as the spark for his interest in pursuing uh, some way to use the scientific method to look for these things the possibility of, of, um, these things that sort of Hancock was suggesting, you know, yeah, not afraid yeah. to say, Oh, you know, this, this guy who's not a scientist doesn't claim to be a scientist, just a journalist, basically uh, looking into this is like inspired me as a scientist. Right. I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. He, he was like, he was like, this seems like a, this seems like a, a pretty good idea, but let's, let's check it with what I know how to do, which is statistical right. analysis. Yeah. Right, but Let he's obviously a very humble individual. Yeah, and that's great, and that's I'm sure. Except that's... for when he's kicking script hard ass. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's what makes it what makes him a good scientist, you know, because it you you have to be able to accept that your idea is wrong. So if you come up with a theory and you're like you really like this this theory or this hypothesis the thing you're supposed to be doing with it in terms of the scientific method is looking for, you know, what can be falsified. So right. if yeah. you, if you're unwilling to change, if you get attached to it, if you get married to that idea, uh, you're going to be more likely to throw away some evidence against it. Right. Because you want to be right. Well, luckily nowadays, um, peer review isn't just people in that field. Peer review is anyone with a laptop and internet access. Yeah. You, you can look it up and you can get it out there. You can, you can call people, you know, out on stuff and take them to task, even over Twitter. And, yeah. um, so we're, we're all, when, when people come up, they'll come up to the soundboard, maybe they're having a good time, maybe they're not. And they're saying, Hey, I can't this. And 
I don't, it sounds like this over here. I never discount anyone like that. I never have. I'm really proud that I've never gone with everyone. <laughs> Get out of here, I, man. Yeah. Freaking drunk. And I'll, I say, where, where are you? Usually I say, where are you? Oh, we're over here. And I say, okay, well, please understand that I've got it. I've got to get the sound from here all the way back to the back and you're about halfway back. So if you're more comfortable, please come and stand with me in the soundboard or just move back or, yeah. Cause I want to make, position, your, I yeah. want to make their experience. So I'm, you have to find the middle. You have to, the middle is a boring place, but it's a safe place and it's a fair place. Um, Sounds you know what boring. they say about things that, are, <laughs> that say, <laughs> yeah. and, it, but it's, it's, um, to, to be fair and to have, to, to not let ego, I mean, I work in a business that's full of ego. It's, it's a ton, it's a ton of ego. So I have to manage that. And I try to do as, as little Geppettoing as I can to not to try and make puppeteer people into doing things. I always just root for the songs when I'm mixing. I always root for the songs. How can I make this song sound? However you want it to sound. If I mixed Kyle, if I mixed $50 dynasty, I would say, okay, I've studied all your work. Um, these songs are like, say there's five records. The first one is really lush and wet. And it was about a, it was a breakup record, a lot of reverb, a lot of ballads. The next <laughs> one was tight and a pop record and, and the funk inspired. Um, do you want each song to sound like it does on its respective record? Do you want the whole concert to have a certain sound? Do you want, and then you say, owing to, um, artists conceptualized integrity saying, yeah, I want it to sound like this, make it all sound like the new record, make it sound like make it sound like that first record because I'm going through a, another breakup. So I want everything to be kind of lush. Okay. <laughs> and then I have a good, I good, I have a good uh, basis from which to operate as an engineer to take my technical and artistic prowess, meet him, put them together and give something palatable to the, to the most people I can. So that's where in sound, I'm just, it's all experimental, but I'm trying to service people at the end of the day, trying to make people ingest artistic endeavor and, and have it move them uh, spiritually, yeah. ultimately. So let's, let's, let's take that and make an analogy again, going back to one of the first subjects we were talking about with precision and ancient stuff, right? Because you, you understand, like you've got this enormous place and you have this artist on stage and you have 50,000 people in this enormous place and you want, it, your, your precision is getting every person in there to hear basically what they're expecting from this artist's previous albums the more precise you get in being able to do that the logarithmic the costs go up right because eventually you end up with everybody has to have a whole set of speakers right in front of them that's right that you can control right so the more the more precise you get to giving them that perfect album experience of what they're expecting the the more the costs go up and it's like exponential that's right right so that's the same thing with these precise buildings in ancient times the costs keep are become astronomical the more precise you get right so right now you're able to do it and, you, and it costs so much you've got a twenty thousand dollar or a hundred thousand dollar board you've got forty thousand dollars worth of cables and connectors and adapters and whatever else going on you've got fifty thousand dollars worth of speakers and that's that still doesn't it's not that precise and the more precise you get that you get enormous costs right? right i think that's an interesting idea yeah that you're you're going for this precision but to really get it precise, like the kind of precision we're talking about these ancients did, where it's like off by tiny little bits for an enormous thing, the cost would be astronomical. And to have it stand the test of time. Every show I do comes down the next day. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they, they, they made stuff to last. It, it would be impressive enough to build a... Can you imagine what the pyramid weighs? 
I know. Yeah. And it's on sand. And the show with your dad talking about you have to you have to pile down into you have to hit something. Yeah. It can't be on sand, right? Right. Yeah. So they had to build it to last that long. That's right. Or they didn't know how long. Maybe they maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But um, I tend to think all of these things go back to Tepe and things like that are I would I romanticize that they are warnings and that they are a, a response to something. Yes. And that they are that, that would be in the best measure of thought would be that it was that it was um, done with pre knowing that it was going to be the it's a message there no stratification. Yeah, that, that would, that's the most interesting part of Gobekli Tepe to me. Uh, the site in Turkey that they unearthed ten, five or ten percent that it is not stratified right in the in its contents. So it wasn't buried over time through different things. It was all done at they, one time. They buried it on purpose. Yeah, buried it on purpose. Yeah. So that says that's a mystery. That's that. There's only so many reasons to do that. Right. So one can think that it was some sort of uh, time capsule. In other words, that's right. Yeah. And the way they buried it shows that they weren't just they weren't just dumping stuff on it. There's actually there is a stratification to the burying, but it's like it's it's more like how you would build a road base, right? First you get everything out of the way, and then you lay down uh, then you lay down some gravel, and then you lay down some soft fine material on top of that gravel, and then you lay down more gravel, and then maybe you lay down some pa- some flagstones, and, and that's what it is that the, they buried it in a systematic way. Systematic. Yeah. So there's like there's all this detritus material, dirt, sand, whatever, and it's got that that has organic material mixed in. There's bones or whatever, and that's how they've been dating things. But then above that, they've got a layer of gravel, and then there's a layer of flagstones, and then there's more of that material, and then there's gravel, and then flagstones, and it repeats itself and all the way up. So when they're digging it down, they're like, okay, this was purposeful burying, but it was architectural or structural. And it's and it you know they didn't just throw a whole bunch of stuff onto it to get it covered up is what I'm trying to say. So that's now the I, other yeah that's the other fascinating part about I, burying it. I, I love me some Michael Shermer right. I cannot have enough of him. Yeah. But because I love I love that aspect of things as well. And when he was talking about it, he said, "Well, how do you know?" And there's no refuse. There's no trash or there's no uh, signs of um, you know and occupation. It, yeah. Yeah, and, and and you go okay. Well, there's. Um, I just I believe that you to reach uh, further in uh, far is something you can measure. Further is a, a continuation. I always have to <laughs> remember that. You know, farther back in history, and I always as I listen, I always go further. Yeah. <laughs> but so um, it's good for me to always remember that farther is a measurable distance. Further is a continuum. So, um, but to to I, to to reach further in our what we're trying to, you have to come up with a theory. You can't just be the guy, the goalie. I think of Shermer as a goalie ah. against ideas. And uh, what I would say is, love you, proud of you. Now, what is your idea? What's your thought on that? It, yeah. it can't, I, would, I wouldn't like to live as, as a goalie. That's all I do is kick pucks out of nets. You have to, <laughs> you have to, you have to be one of the ones who are willing to, to go for it. And I always admire the people that are willing to reach further than what the actual thing is. Hey, watch out! the The watcher is a goalie. Yeah, in soccer, he plays goalie. Hey, there's, <laughs> and and I bet he's good. <laughs> nice recovery. <laughs> yeah, he's getting. He's but like, that's a great analogy. It is a great analogy. Yeah, he's the. Okay, so like that. That's the idea of a gatekeeper, right? So okay, people right. have. Yeah. I, and I agree. I have problems with gatekeepers in any kind of 
uh, knowledge base thing. So we have gatekeepers for like one of the reasons why people have a problem with uh, space science. Like for example, there's the moon landing, and you know, is the Earth flat? Dark matter. Yeah, because NASA is a gatekeeper. It's this government organization. And it's a gatekeeper. Well, that that's that's being knocked down now because we have private organizations going into space. And but the point is, is that gatekeepers. When you have a single organization, entity, or person controlling all the access to a certain kind of a certain a certain information, then you have an issue, right? And so, someone like Shermer is playing a gatekeeper for the standard model, right? So I agree with that. Uh, and he and and they they think of he's a he's a professional skeptic, you know, uh, professional. This is his job. Well, you know what I say about gatekeepers is my saying that that rings that the one I recall about that is never accept a no from someone who doesn't have the authority to give you a yes. Ah, that's great. So, I like that. Yeah. So when you go into the general admission area and you're like, hey, can I get in without this wristband? <laughs> don't and listen say, to their answer. They say no. And you say, well, could you let me in? And they say, no, I don't have that authority either. Yeah, and they say, like, well, then I need someone else. Yeah, I need to talk to your manager. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if it's, that's a simple one because those triggered sayings in my head just go off. And I actually saw that in my head. Never accept a no from someone who doesn't have the authority to give you a yes. Talk to the person that can say yes. And yeah. accept the no from them. All right. That, uh, um, yeah, cool. I was going to ask you for some inside inside knowledge. Now that I'm thinking about it, so then so the next time I'm at a massive concert, who do I talk to and what do I say to get them to let me go backstage? <laughs> In the olden days, it would involve feathers and nudity. Oh, okay. <laughs> nowadays, um, that whole backstage thing has um, has really gone away, and that started with behind. VH, you know, what is it, VH1, behind the music, things like that, yeah. where you started to actually be, we have cameras backstage at Britney Spears, you know, and and you would actually saw what happened and that 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 those those things are really just a job. It's just backstage behind the curtain is just full of jobs. It's yeah. just people doing jobs. And so that mystique has been broken now. Uh, and okay. um, so it's not quite the way it was back in the, when Journey was first coming out on the road. <laughs> I'd do anything to meet Steve Perry. You're like, oh. <laughs> Anything, huh? You know, that those <laughs> days are over because we all have access via Twitter and via direct messaging yeah, yeah, and, and via websites. And so the mystique of backstage is really gone. What I really want well, to do no, is I talk mean, to people. And I mean, I'm talking about the, the, the jobs, you know, like get back there and where all the where everything's going down. Well, I guarantee you guys buy a couple of tickets to China and I'll get you into there. You'll see, uh, you'll see people come together. You talk about people, you know, the, it takes about 200 souls to put this show on and they climb in the air and they don't have OSHA over there, you know, so you have people climbing 90 feet with no, um, even OSHA is no OSHA over here because he's like, (laughs) Hey, you know, Johnson, get your harness on, you know, and they, well, it's so much, it's so much easier not to wear my harness. I say, yeah. I know, but we, you know, they're yeah. on site today. We got to, right. You know, about that. Yeah. So over in, in China, they, they take a lot of, um, there are a lot of people putting their lives at risk just to get a stage up. That's 300 and I think it's 300 feet wide. It's about uh, 30 meters high. So I think it's roughly a hundred meters by 30 meters. And it's a giant show. There are elevators going up and down. There are dancers jumping on and off these elevators that come out up and down. There's a spaceship that comes out. Um, there's all sorts of stuff and there's all sorts of potential, but the structures and system in, un, under which they work are uh, very exact. And there's meetings all the time. 
you know, I mean, it's anytime I work in Asia, there's meetings after meetings after meetings. And in Japan, they don't even let you, they get, when you get to the hotel, there's a production meeting before they'll let you go up to your room before they give out room keys. So they always want to have meetings. So there's, there's ways to structure that you are planning stuff out. And so it would be fascinating for you to, um, I'll take, I'll take some video of you guys, uh, for you guys that shows the, the, um, the, the, how we go about getting that all. But, to, but again, I come in on Friday, they've already been there as soon as they got there uh, from the last city, they're essentially perpetually on tour. I'm going back home for two days yeah. Yeah. and going back. So I'm always in transit. Uh, my job is being in transit and their job is to get the show to the next city. And in this two hours from every, from the major city, erecting a show, getting all these elevators to work, getting these risers lined up that the keyboard and, and uh, drum riser move ahead about 20 feet and they move back all that stuff has to line up without tracks and all those, you know, so it's just a meth. It's just methodology. It actually reminds me, we build pyramids every week. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, um, the, and then you take them down and move them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just, yeah, they, <clears throat> take them down and move them. But I have enormous respect. I've never lost touch with every person that it takes to put on a show like that because there's impending danger everywhere. It's right. like sport, you know, I'm not, I don't know how you guys, I don't know. I've never heard you talk about sports or you, whether you're into sports or not. Um, I love competition. I like seeing people rise to the occasion of competition. I like the story of loss and how people rebound from loss. I think that's an, an enormous, yeah. uh, enormously interesting how people respond from a loss, not just the victories, but the losses. Um, and I also like uh, performance-based sports. I'll, I'll watch tennis. Uh, if you don't keep your, you know, you don't keep your rating, your ranking, you're out. If you don't keep your golf, your card in golf, you're off the tour. Yeah. If you don't keep your ride in NASCAR, you're out. Um, these guaranteed contracts and salaries of the four major sports, I'm not interested any longer at 50, almost 52 years old. I'm just, I've lost interest in, in baseball, football, hockey, and uh, basketball because everything is, perf it's not performance-based either you perform or you lose or out on it. And I've kind of always been into that and how far people are willing to, uh, I'm not into UFC fighting. I'm not into that, but I understand the allure of that. Yeah. That, that it's provocative and it's, and it's, um, but also it's, um, ultimate competition. And, um, so it, it's, um, are you guys into sports? You follow sports at all? Not you, really. No, nope. <laughs> it's never been. You've been more into, and that to what do you attribute that? Is that your upbringing and homeschooling and your surroundings? And yeah, I don't were know. you not I mean, near a major city? We've or? always had fun playing sports, but uh, never really been interested in watching other people do it. I don't know what, yeah. The, yeah. what that's about. My yeah. dad loves sports. He's always watching golf and football and everything on TV. And you know, NASCAR, and NASCAR, and yeah, he's yeah. all into it. But uh, we're just not, never have been. I don't know. Uh, uh, the. Yeah, I don't know what that. I would what that's about. I would think of any sport. NASCAR might be. Uh, uh, that's why I gravitated toward it because I liked that it was. There was a lot of mechanical and a lot of engineering involved. Yeah, yeah. But also, I there's a human cool. being driving it, and you're dealing with downforce, and you're dealing with all sorts of. It's all about timing and short pit stops, and there's never a break. Pit yeah. stops are, yeah. are the furthest thing from a break. Yeah. So we, They're, you know, we actually uh, be, joined a team for the Baja 500 and yeah. like we're in a chase vehicle uh, with a good friend of ours out in California. Yeah, he uh, built a car for the Baja and we we went a, out there. It was a class one, class one car. car, yeah. Big, enormous. So we went out there for like a week <laughs> with him in Baja and it was just, it was freaking awesome being part of that team. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and they didn't finish the race. You know, the car broke down and it was like five in the morning or four in the morning or something like yeah. that. And we had to go down find the them. track backwards <laughs> to find them and then tow them out of there. Yeah. Or no, we did actually they just it was uh the alternator went out. Yeah. And then we replaced the alternator and they they were like, We're done. Yeah. And me and Russ yeah, were like, retired. finish the yeah, race. Freaking drive across <laughs> the finish line. <laughs> they did they were just done. It was like I think it was like what seventeen hours or something yeah. they had been yeah, racing. It's a long, grueling Iron Man kind of race. Yeah, but it was yeah, a I blast. Did, I did a, that. I was in Charlotte when I was on tour with R. Kelly. I had a day off in Charlotte and I called the the raceway up and i said this is in 01 2001 i said hey do you is there anything going on there tomorrow can i get a tour of the place they said well yeah you can get a tour of it but there's also a racing school going on ha huh. yeah and i said well what what can i what do you do and they said well it's 1200 bucks you do 30 laps in your own car it's a former it's a retired car and uh you have an instructor in a car in front of you and i said hey sign me up <laughs> and so i yeah. went i rented a car i drove there took the tour got in the van that had leather seats or some kind of slippery seats. And as they drove us around the track, I remember all the people in the, in the 15 passenger van were all slammed up against the left side of the vehicle because you can't believe the banking. Oh yeah. Yeah, That was my first introduction. Like, wow, they're really going to be pulling some downforce as a human being. Yeah. And then they, so they drove us around, showed us the line and then we got in the cars and uh, I fired the thing up and just to be, it's just bare, bare bones. It's a, it's a, it's metal tubing and skin. Yeah, yep. skin. That's it. Yeah, and that's it's right. A big giant engine. And so I was really into it and I got into it and I did my 30 laps and, and I understood, um, what it was like to, to, it was inco- again, incomparably thrilling. But then I thought to do this professionally with 40 other people around me yeah. at, a th- you know, at twice the speed, yeah. it's gotta be. <laughs> and with the angel of death flapping its wings outside the stadium, every time you yeah. kiss your spouse and get into that car, you're putting it all, you're not just going to roll an ankle in a basketball game and go to the locker room. Right. You're putting it all on the line. And um, I've always been attracted to that. And I've yeah. made friends since then with a couple of NASCAR drivers and I keep in touch. And um, it's really fun to go to those races, but um, yeah, I'd say of all uh, the, of all the sports, um, uh, racing would be the thing that I'm most into and I'm not into it like a whole lot, but yeah. if I had a choice to go to a race or to go to a basketball or b- football yeah, or baseball or soccer, you know, any, yeah. I'd be, it'd be a race. Yeah. No, there's nothing know, like being down. at Daytona and going down by the fence when they come by in a oh, yeah. 40 cars <laughs> at 190. <laughs> and it's just, um, it's, it's really thrilling. And it's, um, my wife has no interest. I said, Hey, I'll purchase a ride along for you sometime. You just hop in the passenger seat and they'll, Nope, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no need. I don't want it. I don't, I don't need it. And so it's, it's fun. It, um, those kind of things are fun. And I appreciate all the people. And that all came just from moonshiners, people running yeah. moonshine. Yeah. That's what's great about their it. cars just yeah. to, you know, so it, it all comes from the, again, the renegades, yeah. whether it's a renegade scholar like Carlson, whether it's a renegade mechanic that builds the faster thing, the, yeah. the yeah. higher, thing or whatever it all comes from people who are on the edge yeah. of what they do and that's where the world is changing and so hopefully when people look back and you time capsule your podcast the grimerica boys the the hancock's thoughts yeah anybody who has a show that really reaches in and takes a chance and having guests on that are um exciting and, and on the edge of theories uh, theoretical stuff that it's that it's looked back and said hey they said it here first you know this yeah. is this is part of it. It's it's fun being being on the edge of that. 
It is cool. It, it, we've had a lot of fun doing the podcast for sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's also, it's also cool to think that because of just because it's, it's out there now that like, you know, Kyle's grandkids will be able to hear us, you know, or his right. great grandchildren. Like, like think of that. If I could, if I could listen to my grandfather on my dad's side and, you know, if he, if, if it would have been, if I was in the future and he was doing a podcast like we are, I'd be able to, as a kid, I would be like, okay, this is, this is great grandpa, you know, or whatever, and listen to it and just learn, learn him. You know, learn yes. my ancestors, right? So that, that's another cool thing about it is like yeah. there's a legacy here that like his. I'm probably not ever going to have kids, but his children, grandchildren, great grandchildren are going to be able to listen to their ancestors talk about yeah. mysteries. Of and them. in and in free time too. It's not you're not up against a six minute. Uh, just you're coming on for six minutes on a TV show for right. You know, there's nothing. You're you're free flowing, and they get to see you too. And if you record your if you're recording these for posterity in, in a video format, they get to watch you think too. And sometimes, as I alluded to. Uh, to which I alluded earlier is that sometimes the best time to get to know people is watching them when they're doing something yes. intensely and watching them think, you know, right. you've had a plenty of time to do that with your mom and a dad, uh, it sounds like. So yeah. to, for them to be able to, to understand your thought process and your cadence, the cadence at which you're thinking and formulating jokes. And I feel like, I feel like I've let people down. Like I, we haven't laughed a lot on this podcast. <laughs> You've been making me laugh. <laughs> but it's, You've had it's some great jokes, man. I look forward to that all the time. And it reminds me, it's almost like it, there's a scene in Fletch. It's a really short, have you guys seen the Chevy Chase? Uh, movie you'll not. have to watch it just because <laughs> when he meets the his romantic interest in that movie, he makes a joke, she laughs, he laughs. And the way they cut it, the way the director cut it, he laughs, ah, and then she cuts, ah, ah, and it goes back and forth. And it reminds me, because you guys sometimes yeah, we'll like, do that. ping pong your laughs back and <laughs> yeah. forth. And, it, and knowing that you're siblings and you know each other and you're laughing, it's it's a celebration of uh, of family, too. So it's uh, I'm really happy. I, I, uh, it's probably my fault, man. I, you know. I didn't get much sleep last night, and I'm just the bad dad jokes are just not coming. <laughs> not coming. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but we're we're uh, we're up on time, man. So how about uh, this? Is always a good question. Like, give us a really weird story, like one of the weirdest things that's happened to you on your travels and doing this stuff. Just like a strange, you know, it doesn't matter what it is about. Just like when you think back, you're like, this was a weird thing that happened. The, the, uh, oh, I was in a, uh, I was in a theater in Kansas city that was purported to be, um, haunted. Ah. And of course I don't, um, for somebody who's open to a bipedal, uh, Sam animal living in the, in the, <laughs> the big thicket down in Texas or up in the, uh, Northwest. Yeah. Um, I'm open to that, but hauntings and ghosts and schools and yeah. that's not my thing not, it's just not, not so much yeah it's not my thing. so i had heard everybody hey hey you know this is the haunted theater I was like yeah yeah it's haunted theater <laughs> so um a lot of times i'll be setting up front in front of house and there's no one in the theater and it's and and i had to i had a coffee or two in me and you know what time it is after you have a couple of coffees so i yeah. went to find a bathroom and I found a bathroom, but the lights didn't work in the bath. I flicked them. I tried the lights and they had one of those things where you have to put in a little key switch and then flip it up oh, to yeah. protect people from turning it off. I felt and I went, oh, I know what that switch is. I can't. Okay, I'll just. And I wandered in to the bathroom and I went into a stall and shut the thing. It was completely dark. And I had a little bit of ambient light, but just the smallest amount. Really nothing. It was dark. And then a blue 
glow sort of happened in the wow. bathroom. This is before cell phones. And it sort of moved across in the, uh, I, I'm looking down at the floor and I went, holy shit. And it just moved from my right to left. And, uh, and I can't explain it. Wow. I couldn't, I, to this day, there's no way I can explain it. It was before cell phones. Yeah. I didn't have it. Um, and I always reject that, that it was just something that I made up or something that happened. But I, it's like any, it's like anybody who experiences anything like that. You say, well, I know what I saw. I'm right. not sure what it was. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't anything, but I remember that as being the weirdest thing. Cause I just thought I can't explain it's, it was uh, frustrating, you know, to not be able to explain what that was. Yeah. And so I asked one of the crew, like, were you in there? Did you go in there or do you, do you have a radio or did you just like, no, I was, and I didn't hear anything. And of course it went away, whatever that glow was went away from where the door was. So needless to say, I cut business short. <laughs> yeah. Literally. And then, um, tapered things off, we'll say. Yeah. And then I headed right for the door <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but so that, see, you, you weirdest. knew it was a ghost. That's why you bailed. <laughs> oh man. Just, and, and so it's sort of, I, I didn't go there, but I just thought, okay, that's unexplainable. It's like not explainable. And that sort of sits as something unexplained that I can never go back and, and do that. But I mean, there are all sorts of things having to do with color. Speaking of the color blue, I had, um, and I've talked about it before, but, uh, the singer from uh, uh, Duran Duran, Simon LeBlanc, once told me, he came out and confided in me, he said, listen, this monitor engineer can't make my voice sound sky blue. And what? it just sounds green to me. My voice is green right now. <laughs> Did he have that? But see, I didn't, I, 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 I took the immediacy, like my blink moment was I went, oh, no, I get it. Like, I get that. And I went up there and I put a pair of in-ear monitors in. I said, hey, he wants me to work on this. You know, and the guy's like, right, uh, right, go ahead. And I don't care. And I stepped in <laughs> and I started singing through his mic and with ears in. And I went, oh, I get it. That's, that's green. That's, I'm not, I'm not synesthetic, but I did, I did hear it. I was going to ask, said, do you I, have synesthesia? Yeah. I, I, I know what that, I know what he means. Okay. And then I just, I just pulled out some of the low mids and I made it sort of more airy and I added a bit of air to the top. And I said, okay, Simon, try this. And he put his ears and grabbed the mic and he, He's saying, her name is Rio and she, yes, now that's sky blue. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, there we go. There must be some, that's also unexplainable, but I got it. There's all sorts, I have a million stories about how artists are able to relate their sensibility, artistic sensibility. Yeah. And for me to be sort of a, um, I have to be sort of the watcher in a way, you know, I have to kind of be somebody who, takes the information and, and disseminates it and sort of makes physical moves on a desk or, yeah. or tries to tries to manifest a physical change in something that that will that will get to them. I don't you know. I can't think of there's there are a lot of salacious road stories and a lot of. No, um, that's all right. Yeah. No, your 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 blue glow story in the bathroom was perfect. <laughs> Man, I I don't know what that I can't explain. It was before cell phones and even beepers. That was this was pre beeper. How do you explain it? That is weird. It was man. a ghost. Yeah. And you knew it's it. And ghost. you knew it was. That's, why, that's you why, why you left. <laughs> that's why you that's why you tapered it off and got out of there. Deep in the oh, recesses man. of your mind, you were like, it's a ghost. It's coming for me. <laughs> I can't I can't. They, they say that more people believe in that over 50% of the population believes in angels. Yeah. In, in in America anyway. Yeah. And I just think that's but you don't want to believe in a bipedal uh hominid yeah yeah <laughs> that could be down there you've been to the northwest right you guys i mean you 
We yeah, we've been to Rico. Seattle. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you just look down at Mount McKinley. You just look down there. You go, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's so vast, you know, it's right. one of my favorite words, but it's so vast. Yeah. You just, you just think, well, sure, this could, this could occur, but an angel, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would hope if that was, a, I hope it wasn't a bully ghost. I just got out of there. I yeah. did hightail it out of there though. Even though I, I'm a non-believer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like the unexplained can make is is dangerous no matter what you know like like okay so we near here we have like there's places all over the world where they have those unexplained lights that just show up right so there's the brown mountain lights that's near Asheville. uh we have the marfa lights down here in texas there's another place i can't remember the names of them but they have them and they've studied them in these light so if you were somewhere and this like this orb of light showed up and started moving around you would be like okay what the hell is that and if it started coming at you you'd probably run right because you don't know what it is Right. Right. So I understand the, the like, I need to get out of here uh, impulse because primal. It's, yeah. It's yeah. It's something is happening and it's totally you don't know what it is. You don't know if it's dangerous. You know, it may it may be nothing. It, even if you don't like some people would immediately think, oh, it's a ghost. And that scares them in this. So they run. But to me, I understand the like, I don't know what that is, but it's something. And so you run. <laughs> no, I'm not going to let you have that one. They told you it was haunted and you saw a light and you were like, oh, crap, that's the ghost. <laughs> that's the ghost. <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm out. <laughs> Man, if they if I wouldn't know, that's the big question, though, right? If I wouldn't have heard that it was a haunted. Right. Thing, you probably wouldn't have tapered it off. <laughs> so I just I would have gotten full extension. God. Now it's. It's, uh, I've, I've digressed down to that level, but it, it's, uh, it, it's, um, I've been very, um, <clears throat> I've been very fortunate to have a 30 year career where I really didn't have to do anything else. <clears throat> I haven't done anything except sound and, um, you know, have a good reputation to, that stands. Uh, they, they always say that, um, uh, you don't have to defend your work. Your work defends you. Yep. So um, that's another one of those things. You don't have to get up and wave your arms about things. You just, it should, you know, yeah, when you it die, it's your reputation itself, yeah. that, that leaves right. you there. So, um, Well, now you've ruined it. your reputation. You've come on our podcast. <laughs> now when people look up Scotty Baldwin on the internet, what they're going to see Bones of the Serpent, Scotty Baldwin, and they're going to listen. They're like, oh my God, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. I freaking think he saw a ghost in the theater. I don't know if I want this guy running my I house. will stand proudly <laughs> at, at, at coming on the show. I, I, I think it's an absolute... Um, it's a pleasure and it's, um, I'm not nervous anymore. That's for sure. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. About it's been a blast, ghosts. man. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you guys very much. And I'm, I'm excited for people to hear a different version of the outro coming up. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, that's right. Hey man, we really appreciate you, uh, being out there and, uh, redoing the outro. That it's was awesome, amazing. Yeah. And I'm sorry that the, I was trying to, trying to give you credit for something. And I was like, Scotty, something i couldn't remember your last name <laughs> you, oh no 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 you no, sent me the clip of that you're like oh yeah, yeah. Was, scotty something was, was, he went no scotty baldwin yeah and i think that's the clip i grabbed on overcast and tweeted that or something so it's uh yeah well, i did I'm, get I'm, it i'm thrilled and you guys are are very um you're in a good position because you're doing what you're doing you're making improvements i like hearing that you're making improvements to where you do what you do yes and you're obviously invested in it and you have a wife that'll bring cake in for you. I know. You know and you God, have, awesome. right? that, all those things. So it sounds like you guys are good people, have good families. And you, you, um, hearing your father lets, lets all of us listeners know about, um, from where it is that you came and, and it's, um, I'm, I'm supposed to be the revolution. Prin Princess band is going to be in Austin in October. I won't oh. be there. 
oh. because I'll be in China at the time. Damn it. But if you guys want to go to that, you're, I'll certainly hook that up and, and you can go and party like it's 1999. Oh, right. <laughs> dude, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. And dude, seriously, if you do ever come nearby, let us know and we'll freaking come Oh, I would love out. to. Yeah, that would be awesome. I appreciate you guys very much. And the lasers are on their way. Sweet. <laughs> 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 Thanks, buddy. All right, man. Well, this has been uh, an excellent interview. Fantastic. Very fascinating. Great conversation. Yeah. So thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Maybe we'll get you back on at some point. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. So I totally made a huge mistake and forgot to give Scotty a chance to give out his uh, contact info, you know, how people can follow him and stuff on, on online. So I'm going to do it. His website is scottybaldwin.com. Uh, his name is spelled with an I-E, not a Y. So S-C-O-T-T-I-E, baldwin.com. And also you can follow him on Twitter at Scotty Baldwin. That's right. Yep. And you are currently listening to Scotty's recording of what he called Kyle's Shinyang Serpent, which <laughs> is the, their pet uh, band's rendition of our outro music. That's right. Of DK <laughs> Funk. That's this DK is the, this Funk. Is Shinyang DK Funk. <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much to Scotty for doing that. It's really awesome. He had these guys just do it. They were doing a sound check, basically. The, I, I don't know if it was the day before the show or the afternoon before the show that night, but they were all there. I saw the video. They had the whole band up on stage, and Scotty was out there in, on the on the mixing board, and they were way up there, and they were communicating, and he got them to play this song as part of the sound check. Yeah. And he recorded it uh, through his with his skills. So this is like a, a one take track. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right. You guys can get a hold of us at brothers of the serpent at gmail.com. Uh, check out the website, brothers of the serpent.com. You know all the deals. <laughs> Comment there. Check out the encyclopedia and the glossary uh, for those snake terms that you don't understand. Talk to Russ on Twitter at yep. SNKBRS. Yep. I am uh, actually at 50. Dollar Dynasty that's on right. Twitter. Yeah, that's right. So if you want to talk to Kyle, you can I'm, follow him. I'm hardly his, ever there. Yeah, you can follow him <laughs> and his band, Fifty Dollar Dynasty at Fifty Dollar Dynasty on Twitter. That's that's what he communicates with. So, and we also have the Watcher on Twitter. He is like at Snake Bros underscore Watcher. I think it's something like that. Yeah, <laughs> you can find him. Just look up the Watcher and make sure there's a Snake Bros in the name. Uh, Share also, the shows. Yeah. Donate to the Pyramid Scheme or the Patreon. Thanks every to everyone who has donated. We really appreciate it. Yep. We got a new we got a new Patreon supporter, so I, I don't remember your name. I will get that for the next show for sure. But thank you so much though. I saw the notification. So yeah. we're now able to pay for all the smokes we use when we're doing this show. <laughs> <laughs> also give us reviews on iTunes. I will read the reviews. We love yeah. the reviews, and uh, we love any comments you guys give us, so thank you so much. Eventually, we'll be able to pay for the three ingredients of rock and roll, <laughs> and that is beers, smokes, and, and rock and roll. And roll. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so don't forget about History Shift. Uh, I want to just say again how amazing this guy is in the Value for Value system. He has donated a ton of time to turn every single one of our shows, our podcasts, our audio podcasts, into YouTube videos. So that's like over 100 shows he has turned, converted into videos and posted them for us and put in all the details and everything. So this guy is awesome. History Shift, thank you so much. You guys can Thanks, follow buddy. him at History Shift on Twitter. He's got a website, historyshift.com, where he 
details the saga, his ongoing adventure of looking for glacial erratics and dolmens in Montana. So check him out there. Also, Henry Hablack. You can follow him at H Hablack on Instagram. He's a great artist. He's given us a bunch of art that we've put up in the Tangent Cube. <clears throat> really interesting stuff that's like inspired by rock art and tarot cards and ancient, just ancient drawings. There's all kinds of hidden secrets in them, so they're really cool. That's uh, uh, Henry H, at H Hablack on Instagram. Also, he has a website, hermetica.bigcartel.com. And uh, we also have a Facebook group, Brothers of the Serpent Facebook group. It is run by fans. The watcher is there. I think George uh, George Howard has is, is joined it. Uh, so check us out on Facebook. We're we're not on Facebook, but there's a bunch of fans there, people running it. So you guys can complain about us behind our backs there. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for being in the Facebook group. That's right. <laughs> also, last thing, CAC 2020. Contact at the Cabin 2020 with Grimerica. We're going there. We're going to be there with David Matheson. Uh, there are a few uh, pl- uh, spots still available. So if you want to go, go to contactatthecabin.com and check it out. So yeah, I think there's going to be We're towels. currently developing cack towels. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Something like that. That's right. Every guest will get his own personalized cack towel. <laughs> so you guys definitely want to see So that you can that. dry off after getting out of an ice bath. That's right. And then lay it out in the desert to lay down and look at the stars. Yep. That's cack- you got to have a towel. So... <laughs> Cack towels are coming up. It's going to be free with every guest, though. <laughs> All right. I think that's it for this this week. Thank you guys so much. Thanks to Scotty for coming on the show. We had a blast. Yep. Thank you. Yep. We Thanks love everybody. you all. All you listeners, thank you guys so much. Always have. <laughs> Good night, Adamu. Always will. Get back to work. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.